Um, and it's, I don't think I've ever talked about it on the podcast, so this is kind of cool to actually go into some of this because I think some people don't realize how significant it is. Um, but this silent censorship, it exists, and it's not as simple as just follow the terms of agreement and you'll be fine and don't incite violence and you'll be fine. Like, no, 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 no. Like, this relates to all sorts of stuff that companies have secretly deemed unacceptable that they don't put in their terms of service, that they don't consistently apply, um, that you can make every rational argument in the world about how you actually are adhering to their terms of service and doesn't matter. I post educational content about cannabis that doesn't get seen by anybody. It is hard. It is hard to navigate those waters and the waters don't make sense. The rules constantly change. And so And you will and you might not even be aware of the censorship. Right. Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. All right, Jason Wilson from Curious About Cannabis is back. Welcome, brother. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's good to see you again after all this time. Yeah, we haven't talked in a while. I wanted to catch up with you, uh, I think, since the fires, right? Yeah, since before the fires, I'm pretty sure. Um, I don't remember exactly when it was that we sat down last, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, we've experienced a lot of... Uh, a lot of craziness around here since then. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Uh, and it's, you know, it's still the the side effects from that fire are still reverberating. Oh, everywhere. and will be for a long, long time. I mean, just, um, just on the housing market. I mean, we already didn't have enough housing in this area in Southern Oregon. And now you burn down, you know... <laughs> Of a good portion a good, of the affordable homes. Yes. <laughs> they weren't even, you know, like mansions. They were like the ones no, that people could afford. No, I mean, these were, these were just basic apartments yeah. and mobile homes and, yeah. and small houses yeah. and stuff. And so, um, I don't know. It's, it's really gut-wrenching. And it's something that, like, you forget about for a while. And then you think about it again. Or you drive by or see something. And you're like, oh, geez. Like, the weight just, like, comes back. Um, from all of that. But for anyone listening that doesn't have to deal with wildfire seasons, uh, consider yourself blessed because this past one in Oregon was extremely rough. I just talked to uh, JD Short about that. And yeah, it's uh, as far as I know, it's been it was the worst season. Um, yeah, I mean, for it to go to through date. residential areas like that. I mean, usually we you're like, OK, yeah, there's thousands of acres burning out by Crater Lake or something yeah. like whatever. And it's just smoke you deal with. Yeah, it's smoke but. and it's annoying. But this just to have the fire cruise down I-5 and, and uh, 199 and just destroy everything that it came in touch with was yeah. crazy. And I mean, we were in South Medford. We got close to the evacuation line, so we had to pack up all our stuff and we're you know, mm -hmm. ready to hit the road. Didn't know where we were going because all the evacuation places were already filled. 
Yeah. Um, so it was kind of like, okay, what do we do? Do we go to the coast? Do we go up to Portland? <laughs> like, what do we, what's the plan? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's sad because for, for the most part, you know, Medford is, was a fairly affordable place. I yeah, don't think it was yeah. the lowest, you know, in rent, but, it's uh, gone crazy. but since then, it is not a renter's or buyer's market, really. Mm-mm, it's I mean, a seller's market all the way. Um, yeah. It's in, it is insane. I mean, you're talking. It's getting to be where like average home, like three bedroom home, is like fourteen hundred, thirteen hundred. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Rent. Yeah. Rental property. Your and prices. Like, and, geez, yeah. man. Back in the day when I paid twelve hundred for a house I had, it was badass. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, and even I remember when I was in grad school, living in Talent at the time, and we were renting a place for like um 1300 and you know that was it was pretty expensive for what it was but we knew we were like well we're close to ashland you're sort of like paying a little bit of a sort of premium for that and Mm -hmm. everything um you know but it was a it was a small you know simple family home yeah three bedrooms you know no big deal you know that would be 1700 or 2000 at this point on zillow i was looking at some of the property values and like a basic you know, a uh, family home, single family home with a, you know, maybe a quarter of an acre or less, you know, is like 300 grand now, um, mm-hmm. 320. Like it's, I don't know, it's wild. And when you consider the socioeconomics of this area too, like that's a, that's really bad news. Well, the wages don't support that around here. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and also too, people don't know, don't realize this, but there's a lot of scammers now taking advantage of this situation. Oh yeah, of course. Um, so having due diligence right now is, is really important. Oh, and even like right when the fires happened, there were scammers that jumped on Mm -hmm. to try to take donations Mm -hmm. and, you know, steal from people. I mean, it's sickening. It's crazy how things like that. I've, it's weird now having lived through, like I went through Katrina and now I've gone through like these Almeda fires and like these, these different, you know, natural disasters. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you see this both sides of humanity you see the really good come out and you also see the really nasty terrible come out simultaneously it's a it's a weird thing it's brutal and it gets very polarized because you know like when we went through the fires you know there was a a large community even in the cannabis community especially Mm -hmm. that really pulled together yeah and brought in a lot of local money to help Mm -hmm. people uh which i thought was cool but like you said on the flip side geez man yeah. You can't, don't call a number on the sign in the front yard. Don't call that number. Nope. Go to the real estate agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try to find a brick and mortar place with a yeah. real person you can actually see can face verify. to face and like yeah. look in their eyes. Instead of, oh, we live in California. Here, sign this lease agreement. Yeah. Like, what am I doing? I just got approved for a $2,000 a month house. Awesome. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's one of the big concerns too, is there were already these continued and sort of renewed bubbles growing around real estate as well as car loans and all these other things. And there's definitely a concern that when things like this happen, that you'll see a much bigger bubble as people Mm. take advantage of that, try Mm. to get people into homes that, you know, the property values have escalated because of what's happened. And then, um, you know, they're like, don't worry about it. We'll approve you for the loan. Just get in there. Um, But then there's no plan to be able to sustain um, you know, that cost of living and everything. Um, so I don't know, weird times, you know, we got through 2020, but, um, I think 2020 was just sort of the, uh, that was the kickoff, the kickoff. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, we're going to be feeling it for 
a long, long, long time. Yes, yes. Um, well, on a positive note, let's catch up with you. Because I know, yeah. man, I know <laughs> that you have been <clears throat> kicking some ass lately. Oh, uh, you. You're putting out the content. You're getting a lot of good feedback. People are loving it. And uh, we just talked about you having uh, an ebook available, too, as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of things. Why don't you catch us up, man? Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for the positive feedback. I'm always excited to hear because a lot of times I... Because I'm doing so many things, I don't always digest um, kind of what's what's going on and how people are actually responding to some of the stuff I'm putting out. So that's always nice. Um, yeah, the podcast is still going. I've been, you know, 2020 was, as we just said, was crazy. Um, so that it caused a variety of delays and pivoting and all sorts of things as far as what I'm trying to build and and do so you know we started to launch the second season of curious about cannabis last fall that's gotten a little delayed we got two episodes in and then it got delayed because of uh, my wife got sick and when anyone gets sick it's like oh is it coronavirus and then everything shuts <laughs> down and you know having a kid and having to deal with child care yep. like there's all this these things that happen and so unfortunately i haven't been able to um move that along as fast as i want to but i appreciate people being patient about that mm -hmm. um but beyond that we still have all of the you know these behind the scenes conversations coming out and um lately i've had the chance to talk to some people that have been on my bucket list um that i've wanted to talk to for a long time so it's been kind of bewildering in a sense um because i've been able to talk to folks like dr vincenzo de marzo who you know along with rafael mashulam and others you know kind of originally characterized the endocannabinoid system and the entourage effect I was able to talk to Arno Hazekamp, who was the person that originally presented the idea of chemovars. Uh, talked to uh, Dr. Dady Mary, who you know is in Israel leading um, a cannabis and cancer lab there at the um, Technology Institute of Israel, doing like really progressive work looking at minor constituents of cannabis and how they're affecting um, not just cancer cell lines now, but their labs actually looking at all sorts of other diseases too. Um, so. That's been amazing, just being able to connect um, with some of these people that I've studied their work for so long, and and now to like somewhat know them on a personal level and be able to ask them questions and stuff has been really really amazing. Um, and so, if anyone hasn't checked out some of the newer episodes of the podcast, that's you know some of the names you can expect. But I've also been um, talking to a number of other like doctors and nurses to get kind of more diverse viewpoints. Talk to a um, a dietitian recently also had a really cool conversation with first lady of the west coast it's a musician out of california of the oakland area um and we both talked about our own sort of personal struggles dealing with bipolar and how cannabis you know how we utilize cannabis to deal with you know um symptoms around that um which I thought was just a very needed conversation because mental health and cannabis use is kind of a still a very taboo thing even in the cannabis industry um, so lots of cool things going on there. And then, um, sort of the thing I'm really excited about is that I think the last time I came on the podcast, I mentioned that one of the things we were about to do was launch a, an online learning platform. Correct. Yeah. And, um, that didn't happen last year. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was working on it, but it, it just didn't happen. But I'm really excited to say that it's come together and now it'll be launching um, here in the next month or two. It's going to launch to my patrons first um, to give them sort of the first go to check it out and give us feedback and that sort of thing. And then after that, it'll launch to the public. 
and it's not just content that I'm producing, but I'm bringing in, um, you know, guests, people that, you know, listeners will recognize from the Curious About Cannabis podcast, um, I'm working with um, Anthony, Dr. Anthony Smith, um, to develop content. So we're sort of reunited and building courses and stuff. And so I think it'll be really um, a really neat thing. It's basically going to be a platform with all of these you know, dozens or so of uh, self-paced learning modules on all sorts of different cannabis science topics. And people can just go through them at their leisure and, um, you know, kind of take their education to wherever they're trying to get to. And uh, we'll also be relaunching our workshops and seminars and all of that through the platform that we used to do in person. And it's kind of what I spent a lot of 2020 doing is like, okay, I used to do these guest lectures at universities and these seminars. Which was series. fun. I loved that. It was that. so fun. Yeah. And all these workshops. And so it was kind of like, well, how do I restructure that? Um, because I really, really value in-person learning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, virtual learning, it, it can be done well, but there's still always an element you lose when you're not in person. You know, there's energy that you feel off of people and stuff. And, Um, so figuring out how to bring those back in a way that tries to recapture some of that has been a challenge, but, um, we're going to try. So we've, we've got all that built out and ready to go. So we'll be launching the, uh, curious about canvas workshop series again, um, here in a, a month or two, once again, probably to patrons first and then to the public after that. And um, several other things like we used to do home cannabis testing workshops with these thin layer chromatography kits. Uh, We'll start doing those again virtually. Um, So if people want to learn how to test cannabis products at home doing chromatography, they can. Um, All sorts of little things like that. We're reviving from the past and and trying to breathe life into them and to bring more knowledgeable folks into the Curious About Cannabis fold, um, you know, so that... um, more voices are represented in the educational content. So um, I'm really, really excited. And ultimately, my vision for Curious About Cannabis is for it to become something way bigger than myself. And I see this as kind of a step in that direction of getting more people involved. Um, And Natural Learning Enterprises, the company that's sort of the umbrella over Curious About Cannabis, is bringing on an advisory board with scientists and educators and stuff. And we're really trying to kind of give that some life of its own. So We'll see where it goes. Lots of education, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I'm I about. Mi- I miss talking to Anthony, man. I yeah, yeah. He's, he's such awesome. a cool guy. Yeah, uh, you know, in terms of sitting down and talking, I don't, I don't know how he is to work with. But <laughs> yeah, just, but he's a great guy. He is. Yeah, I love working with him. I mean, yeah. when we were building Kinevir, that was, I mean, that was one of the probably the funnest times of my professional life you know yeah and, and for the listeners if you go back and you can just look at the titles you can see jason wilson are curious about well no you weren't curious about cannabis you were you were uh jason just, wilson back then yeah it was just jason wilson yeah yeah and sometimes i probably put down uh Kenevere too yeah you did so yeah. if you look back at those old episodes you can hear anthony talk and he has a lot of good stuff to share that was some good episodes yeah i mean his understanding of cellular and molecular biology is um just so um refined. I mean, he can, he can see and move these molecules around in his head and think about what they're, you know, doing on a, uh, on a really, um, you know, a small level on a, on the cellular level and on a pharmacological level and everything. And so I always absorb so much from just hearing his perspectives on things. And, and of course, I mean, a vast majority of what I know and understand about, um, 
a lot of those topics come from his mentorship. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I would like to hunt him down again i'll have to talk yeah, to you about that. that yeah for sure we'll make that happen again yeah, yeah that'd be awesome absolutely uh now um uh, there is an ebook for people i just want to mention that because you know some some people just don't buy books but sure yeah yeah uh, there's something i'm going to check out is the ebook yeah the so curious about cannabis option. book yeah there is an ebook option so there's a natural learning enterprises has a store now um and it's just store.naturaledu.com and you can find the curious about cannabis paperback version there, but you can also get a digital copy. Um, I've even had someone ask me to do an audiobook version, like to have me read, not just read the narrate book, it. but narrate yeah. it and mm-hmm. like include notes and stuff. Oh, nice. Um, and I've been thinking about doing that, uh, cause it'd be kind of a fun project anyway. Yeah. Um, and you I could, could also do like an author, like, you know, right. Sort of a background. commentary. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause there's a lot of stories behind, why certain content got my eye and why it made it in the book and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. I could I could see that being a fun project to do. And if people want to learn that way by listening to it, then I want to support that. That's you know that's one of the critical things. Being an educator is like how do I accommodate as many learning styles as possible and make things accessible. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're kicking butt out there, man. Thanks, man. You too. I've been I, watching you too. I don't know. I don't know about that, but you know, it's the same thing. You know, with us, like we just, it's been such a crazy last year. Like, and towards yeah, the end of the yeah, year, it just we got real slowed down just because of everything. Oh, you yeah. know, and like you said, we just have had um, recently had a sickness. I don't know. Like you said, who knows? COVID. What it, cold? Who knows? We didn't die. I know that. Yep. Unless I don't think I'm dead, but uh, unless <laughs> this to, is heaven podcasting, <laughs> do a reality check. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, what was that in uh, Waking Life? No. What was the one where he did the spinning oh, top? Oh, that's in um, to make Inception. sure. Yeah, to make sure where mm-hmm. he if he was in reality yeah. or not. Yeah. Uh, the Waking Life one I like because he he does the the light switches and I think in that movie or maybe it's just a lucid dreaming thing, but trying to push your finger through your palm. It's a reality check as well. Mm. Does that work? It does. Yeah. If you if it's something you really start to do regularly, then you'll do it in your dreams and uh, it'll trigger you to let you know whether you're dreaming or not. If, That's cool. Once you get used to it. Yeah. Almost like you're stepping into lucid dreaming or something. No, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's 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 the the goal is to get it to where it's a um, a behavior that you're doing automatically so that when you're dreaming, your brain will do it at the same time. Um, and then when you try to do it in your dream, usually what happens is your finger sort of just like kind of keeps pushing mm. through slowly, mm. you know, or something just kind of like doesn't quite feel right. You don't have that resistance. Um, it doesn't work for everybody, but that's one that my wife and I, when we were really into lucid dreaming, that was. Are you able to? Um, used to. I haven't practiced in a long, long time, mm-hmm. but I used to have a, you know, a legit dream journal that I kept religiously and um my wife and I both have we sort of have this natural tendency to lucid dream anyway and so when we first got together that was something we uh played around with a lot of like Mm -hmm. trying to really dial that in and control it as much as we could and we did some pretty pretty neat things um but that was a long time ago and it was before kids and everything yeah. else. So. Now you're just like, I want sleep. Yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I just asked that because, you know, it, and this is how it's related to cannabis is there was one time in my twenties that I took a fairly long break from cannabis mm-hmm. and 
I'll tell you one symptom, at least that seems to be pretty common, is that your dreams become very vivid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For a little while. Yeah. Yeah. Your REM cycles yes. get sort of restored. And, yes. Yeah. And so that whole couple months that I had quit, I had had some major, major dreams going on. <laughs> Unfortunately, they were nightmares. That's how it is for me, too, usually. And because they were nightmares and they were continuous and so mm -hmm. vivid, it's like I almost forced myself to learn how to lucid dream. Mm hmm because I was trying to get away from the nightmares. That's actually very common. Yeah, and it yeah. actually worked. It was, mm -hmm. you know, towards the end there, I was actually controlling my dreams, keeping away from like the, the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was quite strange, really strange. But as soon as I kicked up cannabis again, oh yeah, gone. Yeah. yeah. Gone, and I haven't been able to do it since, so. Yeah, that REM cycle disruption of THC is very, very real. Um, but I, it's same thing for me. I've, I've had problems with nightmares my whole life. Um, and I have this recurring nightmare that's sort of like this, probably this deep seated subconscious anxiety I have, uh, but it's like, there's always someone trying to come after me or break into the house I'm in or, you know, or whatever. And so I'm like always trying to escape basically these really intense dreams. And so the lucid dreaming stuff for me did come about as an ad adaptation to try to deal with nightmares, um, to try to figure out how to get some control over them. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just spins out into some really interesting directions. Cause once you realize you can control your dreams in some ways and that you can train your brain to do certain things when you're dreaming, um, it changes your entire perspective on like what dreaming is and what's possible to do, you know, kind of in your own mind. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's crazy. Lucid yeah. dreaming is almost like it's almost like a realization of like when you do acid and have a, a good trip or something where you have a mm -hmm. revelation. It's like it's it crazy a, to I, think that you know, it, it like, is Whoa. a psychedelic experience, yeah. I would say for sure. I would think it is. It yeah. is mind manifesting. Right, right, yeah. right. But with the, the ability to have some vivid imagination, like to be awake and try to ima imagine that stuff is not vivid like a dream. No, yeah, yeah. There's whatever the brain is is doing while dreaming, the way it's bringing information together in these unique patterns. Um, yeah, you, it's not something that you'll easily intentionally put together. Right. Um, and the idea of interacting with yourself, like that you're dreaming and you're getting control over it, and then um, I don't know if you've ever done this in your lucid dreams, but if you've ever tried to interact with other people in your dreams or other characters, uh, it becomes a weird situation. Um, and for me, one of my like major lucid dreams that I remember where I was like really trying to do it and succeeded, I'll never forget in the dream, I walked outside of my old, my parents' house, you know, back when I was a teenager. And um, I recognized that one of the cars was the wrong color. And then... Um, I tried to confront my parents about it. And then the all the characters in the dream, because the dream sort of started to morph and everything, they like refused to be engaged. Like they like wouldn't acknowledge, you know, it was like a weird situation. Um, and so recognizing that it's like, I'm interacting with myself. Like I, I have this separate ego side of me that is existing right now, but also all this other stuff around me is myself too. And like trying to tease like information out of that is a very interesting thing. And, and sometimes the characters will talk to you. And sometimes, you know, you do have these weird, you know, interesting experiences where there's a actual dialogue or dynamic back and forth. That's crazy. But it's, it's almost like DMT with the aliens. It is. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's an Maybe interesting you have something thing. to teach yourself. 
Yeah. You know, if you can get the right information out of these people. I know. Yeah. Well, and a lot of the hardcore lucid dreamers, you know, say that one of the, if you want to learn from your, if you want to confront your subconscious, that uh, the goal is to try to find the void and have no, um, no other sort of um, information being presented and then try to present your questions and things to the void. And then the dream will build around that and provide a response. Um, One thing I often wonder about is when, so like there's some studies that have shown that cannabis helps like say veterans with PTSD. Yeah. yeah. And I often wonder if that isn't just simply the fact that it suppresses Mm -hmm. dreams. um, I think to a large, large part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if you can suppress that, then, you know. And cannabis affects how you consolidate bad memories. So the way your brain handles bad memories versus good memories, it has different machinery for that. And um, in general, cannabis is good at eliminating bad memories a mm. lot easier than eliminating good memories, mm-hmm. um, which is a nice feature. And it's one reason why, um, you know, even though cannabis can disrupt episodic memory and stuff and you can forget what you were doing and all of this. You generally, even the most chronic intense users um, still remember the best moments of their life and, you know, all these, yeah. these different things. So um, it's an interesting, you know, property that way. And so I think part of the PTSD thing is the REM cycle disruption and not having to deal with the night terrors and dreams and that sort of thing. But then also that of like, the brain being able to compartmentalize away some of these bad memories um, and purposefully forget them, you know, and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, it's, yeah, it's a really fascinating thing because it's one of these examples where the effects of cannabis could be positive under a certain situation and negative under a different situation, depending right. on the person. Yeah, that's a good point too. That's a real good point that, yeah, it could help someone with PTSD, but someone who's not having those symptoms and stuff, it might suppress it in a bad way yeah and some people that are really struggling with sleep um sometimes cannabis can make their sleep worse i think we've talked about that before but um it's one of those things like you just have to just the individualized nature of medicine it's it's so weird for me i haven't had like unless i take a long break i don't have the typical symptoms of like getting hungry and you know being tired from it Mm -hmm. um we've shared some of our cannabis with family which we always do and the report back this year has been, man, it makes me tired, it makes me <laughs> fall asleep. I'm like, yes, <laughs> but uh, uh, but I don't, I don't feel those things anymore. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I will admit, like if I do dabs all morning and then sure. try to function in the afternoon, I'm pretty tired. Yeah, but you know, like I don't know, I just, I, I don't know. It, it, I can see how it might cause anxiety even and and not have you sleep well. Yeah, for sure. And you know. and the dose is is important. Um one thing that's cool that um I've been studying cuz I'm I didn't mention but I'm teaching for a university now doing some cannabinoid science classes. I was going to ask about that. I don't want to interrupt, but I want to keep going on with that. But uh yes, I wanted to follow up with that. How is that going? Did you get some courses in? Like did so you get I've, some stuff done? We've got courses built and the program launched um and then my teaching will start in May, I think, because they're, you know, students have to go through um, some of the early classes before they'll get to mine. Which so is are, that like a summer term thing? Level, but, um, 
I think so. The The university has trimesters. So they uh-huh. have like a January through April oh, and okay. then May through whatever yeah. and then September through whatever. That's exciting, um, man. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, it's It's been really cool because it's always been something I've sort of put out there in the universe that I want to be involved in colleges that are working on developing cannabis content and mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. So to see that happen has been um, really, really, really amazing. And before I forget, what I was, what I was going to say, why, why I thought about that and we'll come back around to Mm -hmm. it, but the, um, the anxiety thing and why dose matters. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I teach about in my cannabinoid science class is that, um, in low doses, um, THC tends to, um, cause this suppression of excitatory neurons. And so you get this anxiety relief. So like the, This is a way oversimplified way of describing it, but just imagine that like, you know, the volume in your brain in these neurons gets kind of turned down, you get some anxiety relief, but at higher doses, you start to suppress inhibitory neurons. And so then you get the opposite effect because Mm -hmm. now you're suppressing uh, primarily GABA, which would be naturally providing some anxiety relief. And so then you're moving into that realm of getting anxiety. And so dose is a huge thing there along with whether you're a new user or a chronic user, but also the dose that generally, if you're wanting anxiety relief and don't want to, and and this is common sense, really, when you think about it, but high high doses tend to make people more anxious. Right, but also for like maybe a halfway regular smoker or someone that's just started, but they're smoking regularly, um, you know, it it might be a value to know Mm -hmm. that. um, Because just like with edibles, I, I can, I, I have like seriously 50 milligrams to a hundred milligrams. Perfect. Yeah. For me, mm-hmm. uh, anything more than that. And it becomes the almost, tipping point, almost non-medicinal <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> where it's just like, Oh, you ruin the next two days and you know, stuff like that. So that's good for people to know that, especially beginners mm-hmm. is that, you know, it is dosage dependent and smoking more like i've had friends i had an uncle man before he passed away from too too many things oh, no. uh, but uh he, that was his philosophy is if one works then seven should work better <laughs> so yeah. if, you know if one bowl works then you know mm-hmm. three bowls should put me really to sleep nah that's not the case yep you got to find your sweet spot and everyone everyone's sweet spots different Absolutely, especially yeah. as a beginner. Because yeah, as a beginner, absolutely. you're probably going to get munchies. You're probably going to get red eye, dry mouth, dry and everything mouth. else. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and and what's fascinating too is like, as at least as far as I understand, because the research is changing so fast now, but I don't believe we even understand why that effect happens. Like, why why do these you know these glutamate, glutamatergic neurons, these excitatory neurons, get inhibited first before the GABAergic, the inhibitory neurons, like, you know, what's what's going on there? Some of the details we don't totally understand. Um, but once we do, we might be able to manipulate that um, through other means. Either, you know, there are um, like GABA inhibitors and glutamate inhibitors and that sort of thing. And so there could be some interesting cocktails that come out in the future that um, possibly maybe prevent the inhibition of GABA and then, you know, maybe can take the anxiety out of THC. We'll see. Mm-hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a side note, um, you know, we're talking about uh, just how cannabis affects, you know, internally. Um, people who take 
turmeric. Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. Turmeric. Um, as I understand it, it it has an effect in your body where it it keeps you from getting high, mm. or, or it takes away from the high. Uh, do you know anything about that? Um, because the reason I asked that is mm-hmm. because relating to cannabis as medicine. Uh, a lot of people that have arthritis, which is quite a few people mm-hmm. uh, in some form or fashion, um, a lot of them take turmeric. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, but like I said, I, I think I've seen studies that, that have said or mm-hmm. says there's some correlation between taking that spice and not being able to get as high. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It's been so long since I've read or thought about that, that I probably won't be able to speak to it with confidence. But I do know that there's uh, curcuminoids, which you would find in turmeric, um, do interact with the endocannabinoid system in certain ways. Um, But I, off the top of my head, I don't remember what those dynamics are. I'd need to go back and and read. But I know there's there's something there around the, the curcuminoids. Uh, I wish I remembered, but I don't. It's okay. It's okay. I was just curious about that because like my mother, you know, she... She smokes cannabis and not regularly. She does it at night for, for sleep and um, it works for her. She does small doses, mm-hmm. you know, one hit or whatever, and it's off a cartridge. But um, but I do know that she takes turmeric too. Yeah. And so I don't know how that affects. Now, I do that. know that like calamus root, you know, is used to prevent or reduce the effects of THC. Um, um, now, did, have you heard about exercise? Uh, uh, being able to your body when you exercise one of the side effects of exercising is cannabinoids being produced have you heard that sure yeah yeah of endogenous cannabinoid mm-hmm. release yeah is that from exercise yeah i mean it's it's a piece of the sort of endorphin effect you know there's multiple things your body's making its own op- opioids and its own endocannabinoids to deal with the stress of exercise absolutely um that's a thing and in general um exercise is a great way to try to um get your body to self-regulate its endocannabinoid system better. Um, but a lot of that research is also still so um, young. One of the things I talk about in my class is this huge measurement problem around the endocannabinoid system that, um, you know, we have a lot of preclinical information about endocannabinoids and the receptors and what's going on, but um, it's really hard to translate that um, confidently to understand what's going on in a human body, um, primarily because it's really hard to measure endocannabinoids and, um, cannabinoid receptors and things in the body. Um, and then also, you know, one of the things I've been teaching more about lately is the endocannabinoid dome. So this concept that, you know, the endocannabinoid system is entirely insufficient to explain what cannabinoids are doing. Um, it's, at this point, a very sort of almost a primitive concept because it's evolved so much. Um, and the endocannabinoid dome includes, um, for instance, compounds like PEA and OEA in the body that don't exhibit affinity for CB1 or CB2 receptors, but do influence the activity of 2AG and other compounds and have effects on other receptors that a lot of cannabinoids also affect. Um, and then, um, there's all these non-cannabinoid receptors and everything. So it's just so complicated. Um, it's been hard to measure. So it's hard to definitively say what's going on in the body um, and how endocannabinoids are changing. Um, and another thing that sort of uh, doesn't, is underappreciated is that the endocannabinoid system is not one thing. Like 
the endocannabinoid system is localized all throughout your body. And so it's, this came up in my conversation with um, the doctors Knox last year, but this idea that you, each tissue in your body and, and each cell, it sort of has its own endocannabinoid system and the endocannabinoids and the cannabinoid receptors may be doing things differently in different parts of the body, which then adds to that complexity of trying to understand what might happen if you give someone a cannabinoid or if they're exercising what's happening to their cannabinoids, just makes it that even that much harder to try to tease out because you may measure one effect um, in one way and it's possible you may see a totally different effect in another cell type or you know a different area of the body or, or that sort of thing. Right. And I, I imagine that's also like per person too, right? Like, uh, uh, yeah, like absolutely. endocannabinoid system, like what affects it, what doesn't. Yeah, I mean, know, it's... Since- it's it's connected to the genome and yeah. all these other things. Mm-hmm. And so, Crazy. yeah. And diet is a huge piece of that too. Um, a, a good tidbit for people to know if you want to support your endocannabinoid system is um, it, generally the precursors to endocannabinoids are are these polyunsaturated fatty, acid, fatty acids. So like omega-3, omega-6 fatty acid, but primarily omega-6, primarily linoleic acid, that is generally what your body uses to make arachidonic acid. And then um, arachidonic acid is then um, generally transformed, usually brought together with an amino acid and transformed into endocannabinoids as well as all sorts of other compounds in the body. Um, so if you want to support your body, exercise is uh, really good, obviously, for multiple reasons, but also for the endocannabinoid system but also diet and making sure you've got those polyunsaturated fats in your diet. It's really important. I, I, this is going to sound funny, but you, you triggered this with the talking about diet, but I read an article actually on the podcast, a couple, uh, well, I haven't released it yet, but talk about how people, you can use uh, CBD oil or extract for, um, for preserving food. Mm, oh, I saw that with the strawberries. It's strawberries. That's the one. Yeah. yeah, they were putting uh, it on strawberries to, I, I guess it's the same as like using citric acid or something mm-hmm. on the product. So it maintains freshness. I don't know what that means, but. Yeah. And, well, and, you know, the antioxidant potential of cannabinoids is pretty good. Well, I'm thinking um, if that works to keep your food fresh as far as like, you know, for a certain amount of time, man, that's just a good supplement to you know, throw some CBD oil on there. and Well, and, and cannabinoids in some form or another have been used for similar purposes for a long time. Um, there are cultures out in uh, the Middle East and South Asia and stuff that have used cannabis leaves and cannabis flower materials and stuff to cover crops to keep them fresh and protect them from pests and stuff. And so it's neat to see uh, more of the industrial uses of cannabis resins being explored rather mm. than just the idea that humans are going to consume the resins. Um, cause I, th- I think there's probably a lot of interesting applications out there that could diversify, um, you know, farmers sort of options for if they want to grow cannabis, what that crops can be used for. It would be interesting to see a farmer or a farmer or people, uh, try to start growing food that have more CBD naturally. Mm-hmm. Cause I understand that it's in the past, we've had more concentration of CBD in our natural foods. And then well, since we've kind of over-processed those vegetables and fruits and stuff, we've kind of eliminated a lot of that. That's definitely true for um, certain terpenes and flavonoids I see. that okay. um, have activity at cannabinoid receptors. I see. Okay. Um, so like uh, the example I always give is corn. 
because corn used to be much more rich in beta caryophylline. Mm. Um, and then as it, I think through the like fifties through the eighties or nineties or so with intensive farming, um, that oil content dropped down quite a bit. And then farmers started to notice that their crops were losing some pest resistance. And so they're trying to, you know, find a way to intensively cultivate corn, but also ensure that the oil content is going to be up there. So certainly there have, and beta-caryophylline is considered a dietary cannabinoid because it has activity at CB2 receptors. So there is this theory that, um, you know, we've had a cannabinoid um, sort of deficiency over the past 70, 60 years or so, because a lot of these phytocompounds um, that were once very present in these foods are not there anymore. I I think there's a lot to that because where my attention is now, what I'm really most excited about is understanding how other phytocompounds exhibit activity at cannabinoid receptors and TRPV1 receptors and that sort of thing. Um, and to rethink the definition of what a cannabinoid is and, um, and trying to zoom out a little bit and also not use cannabis as the reference. Cause for instance, there are, there are plants and fungi that produce what we would consider endocannabinoids. Um, and so these, you know, these polyunsaturated fat derivatives, you know, are a type of cannabinoid. And then you also have these uh, compounds like cannabis makes that are sort of in the the terpene production line that requires you know like olivitolic acid and gyrenol pyrophosphate um, to produce and so you basically there are different biosynthetic pathways that you could get to what we now consider cannabinoids and I think that we'll probably discover others and I think our conception of what a cannabinoid is is going to change quite a lot which is then going to change how we think about um, nutrient deficiencies in our foods and that sort of thing. Because yeah, it's, it's been a thing that's talked about a lot, that our food now is less nutrient-dense than it used to be. But how do we classify nutrients? That's changing um, mm -hmm. over time. And, you know, some of these uh, compounds that we might end up calling cannabinoids and some of these flavonoids and other compounds... Um, you know, I think they're going to have much more value um, in the future, which is going to make it uh, more interesting to decide how valuable a food or an herbal medicine or, or something is. And one thing I'm particularly excited about, sort of going back to my roots in botany, is I think there may be a way to use all of this to assign more economic value to um, wild plants, uncultivated plants. Um that could potentially justify um, concert, certain conservation efforts and that sort of thing. And so I think once we recognize the value of cannabinoids broadly and we expand our definition of what a cannabinoid is and we start to see plants and fungi differently through that lens, I'm, I'm really hoping that makes it easier to say, okay, economically we need to save these things that we haven't studied yet because there may be you know, really great drugs or you know, vitamins and things that... Um, that we want out of them. Um, so I don't know. That's... It would seem like a farm could selectively breed either higher terpene Absolutely. things yeah. mm -hmm. or higher nutrition. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and go those directions. And it seems like and they that will. Would, they yeah, will. I hope so. That'd be really yeah. cool. Like you smell a cantaloupe from like five feet away. You're like, ooh, <laughs> boy, that's strong. Well, and and I, I know, I know there are people out there that you know are really focused on trying to breed cannabis into all of its potential forms, mm-hmm. um, which will you know, be a lot different than the cannabis we've been used to in the past or mm-hmm. we're used to now. Um, so it's gonna be really cool to see where some of that goes. We won't even see the outcomes of some of that because it'll take so long to do, but some of it we will. I know um, he's really popular in social media, but um, David Heldreth Jr. Um, that works with, um, um, what's their company? Panacea Life Sciences, I believe. Um, but he posted something recently. Uh, they have FDA approval for cannabis leaves as food and have been working on all sorts of other things. But one of his goals he stated is like trying to do what, um, you know, what was done with the origins of broccoli and all of that, but doing it with the cannabis plant, seeing what all, you know, we can really breed it into to provide more options, both as food and industrial resources and stuff. So I'm keeping an eye on his work because he's, he's very, very busy all the time doing really interesting things like that. That's crazy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'd like to see I'd like to see some changes in our food. Um instead of just trying to put out as many stocks of corn or well and that's the thing we have to find ways to value things mm -hmm. um and i think that's that's been a big problem because the people that make some of the most important decisions make their decisions based off of dollars profit yeah and so how do you present the value to them that that's going to influence that decision um it's a it's a real issue and it's something that you know like i said coming out of the botany and sort of ecology and wildlife conservation world um it's a battle that's been raging for a really, really long time. How do you assign economic value to organisms and agricultural crops and and wildlife we haven't studied and all of that so that it gets incorporated into budgets and all of that. And mm-hmm. so I think the cannabis is paving the way um, for some really cool um, things that will happen in the future along those lines, especially the work that's going into chemically characterized cannabis and everything. I mean, a lot of these tools um, are already creeping out into research spaces and stuff to, um, you know, so that people take that perspective they have on cannabis and apply it to other plants. And my interview with, uh, Dady Mary really focused on that because one of the things I really wanted to, uh, show people through that conversation is what they've been able to do in Israel in setting up a, an efficient system for evaluating what's in a plant and what does it do to the body? What does it do to different tissues? And, you know, we've had the tools to do all these things, but they have really optimized it and created a system where, I mean, he was telling me within a few months, they could take any plant extract and tell you what's in it, what cancers it may be, you know, possible to to use to affect what other diseases it might be useful for. Um, so they're sitting on some really, really cool IP there, um, which they sometimes get a lot of flack for, but I'm really excited about it because I think models like that are going to expand um, throughout the world and we're going to start to see life in general, plants, fungi, animals, um, in a uh, new, newer, refined way. Sure, sure. Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. Well, one way or another, we'll see them in a new way, whether it's a, a good thing or a, <laughs> a bad, bad thing. thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, well, so one thing I did want to talk to you about um, since you're here is that, so recently we had a, 
OLCC investigation start yeah. on um, some cartridges that were made um, by a, a farm that was essentially unaware of some unlisted ingredients. And um, I, I don't know how they catch on to that, but yeah. they, they caught on to it with these carts. And uh, as, I, as I understand it right now, there was supposed to be a recall Mm-hmm. Yeah, on those carts, and the farm was very cooperative and open with OLCC, so it really wasn't that issue there. It kind of came back to the company of the maker of the the cut, if you will. The mm-hmm. what, what do you call it? What do you, the what, uh, the diluent? Diluent. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and there was an unlisted ingredient in there, either squalene. Squalene is that how you say mm-hmm. that? Or Squalene. Squalene or squalene, yeah. Okay, two different things. One of them's not good. So, um, yeah, you've got squalene or squalene, and you've got squalene. Mm-hmm. So the the you've got lean versus lane. Um, that's the sort of important differentiator. And I'll start off by saying I'm definitely not like an expert on on squalene or squalene, um, but um, it is something I talked a little bit about in the Curious About Cannabis book when I released it a while back in that it's either one of these can be found in cannabis extracts and vape pens and stuff um, for different reasons. Um, so just so I understand, are you saying that it's possible, well, that it that there's going to be a certain amount in there anyway? Um, that's hard to say. So when I, when I was spent most of my time in the testing labs, you know, obviously we weren't looking at squalene or squalene. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a lot of personal experience on how common it is to see in trace concentrations. Um, there's a little bit of data that indicates that it's naturally occurring in the cannabis plant. Um, but, you know, it would be an extremely low amounts. So in general, it shouldn't be something you would really detect. Mm-hmm. Um, so the... The concern is when you see it in abundance, um, how to get there, why is it there? Um, and in general, these are you know oily compounds. They're commonly used in cosmetics. That's really where you see them. Um, you know, they're yeah. You're not vaping cosmetics, right? No, you know? yeah. <laughs> That's and it, the it's, problem. It it used to be primarily sourced from shark livers and it can mm-hmm. be synthetically made. Um, so squalene is a terpene. Squalane is like a um, saturated version of squalene. And sometimes you see squalene as a contaminant in squalane because they're using squalene to make squalene and it's not Mm -hmm. always an efficient process. I see. Um, So you often see them together. Mm. Um, The reason that there's a lot of um, talk about it in the cannabis industry is because both of these compounds are associated with lipoid pneumonia um, when inhaled. Now, once again, this is another one of those things where the toxicity data for inhalation is not, uh, great. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's one of these things that, you know, has been approved for cosmetics, not approved for people to inhale into their bloodstream. So there hasn't been a ton of, um, research on the effects of inhalation, but, um, um, my understanding, I really hope I don't get this wrong, but I think it's squalene that tends to be, um, more problematic i i'm actually i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stake my flag on that because mm-hmm. i might have it mixed up and i don't want to confuse or, or mislead anybody but one tends to be a little 
little more problematic than the other, but in general, it's assumed that they both can cause lipoid pneumonia and that these these oils are not um, thought to be good to inhale in abundant concentrations um, and can make you pretty sick. And another reason that they're being talked about a lot now is because going back to 2019, when E-Valley was a huge thing, so when everyone was getting sick from the vape pens and no one knew why, and people were like, well, it's vitamin E acetate or it's whatever, and I mean, we still don't have clear answers mm-hmm. to some of that. Um, but some of the additives that were found in the extracts, one of them was squalene and squalane. Um, so, you know, there's now some speculation that, you know, possibly, um, you know, these compounds might have contributed to uh, the sim- these E-Valley symptoms, um, you know, possibly equally or more than some of these other additives they found. But a lot of that is still speculative, so it's it's hard to say. Um, you know, but basically it's, it's a new, it's a new additive that's on people's radars now. Um, well, I think the biggest issue with the whole situation is that it's an unlisted ingredient. Yes. Yeah. That was, and and that's the issue is like, and we're, (laughs) this is what got to me is that we're still seeing this happen after all this time since 2015, (laughs) you had your chance to get your head out your ass. So why are we still seeing on? listed ingredients it's really frustrating it's not like people don't know and and i just want to bring this up um is that when i responded to this and i put a post up about it i got a response back from the company that is Mm. that's involved with this and they basically said that you know they're most one of the most transparent companies and this and that and that i i expected that answer Mm -hmm. you know because everybody's transparent now right Still doesn't fix the problem. Problem being is you put something in something that didn't list it and and then you put it on the market. Not cool. Um, and here's the deal. Even if you look at it two different ways, you can look at it, well, like they didn't know. Right. That's a problem then. Mm-hmm. If you didn't know what you had in your ingredients, yeah, there's a problem. So you can't say that. And then if you say, well, you know, well, it's there's just no other answer. You put it out there either knowing you did it unlisted or you didn't know about it and didn't do your research on your products that you're claiming is ultra clean. Well, yeah, I mean, it relates to like good manufacturing practices and supplier evaluations and stuff. So, you know, I've talked before that one of the, one of my backgrounds and something I do a lot of consulting in is with labs around quality management and for production labs. um, Usually what that looks like is not only you know, implementing what's called ISO 9001, which is sort of a basic international standard for quality systems, but also getting compliant with the FDA's rules for good manufacturing practices. And granted, the FDA rules are very vague and broad, and they're written that way on purpose to give companies a lot of leniency on things they can do because the FDA has lobbied to write them that way. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, there are still some basic expectations. Um and I can't say anything about the the company itself. I know nothing about mm-hmm. anything about them. So mm-hmm. I'm just talking very generalized mm-hmm. here. Um, but in a product manufacturer, if they're upholding good manufacturing practices, then one of the first things that you implement is a supplier and ingredient evaluation process. And if you're trying to meet dietary supplement GMP rules, then there's a requirement that you do... Um, 
verification testing on ingredients when they come through. And in general, that usually happens per batch. And usually these batches are pretty big. So you do this kind of annual round of ingredient testing um, on the particular batch. You make sure your supplier is sending you product from that batch, you know, um, as much as possible so that you don't have to possibly do another verification. And then you do it again the next year. It's just something, it's just part of the process. It's usually expensive. And this is why a lot of companies don't do it. Um, Because depending on how many ingredients you're managing, um, ingredient testing could cost, you know, anywhere from 20 to 100 grand or more a year um, just to verify that your ingredients, not only that they're what you think they are, but that your third-party data agrees with the analytical data that the supplier gave you. And so this is not only an ingredient verification, but it's also a supplier verification in that you're trying to see how trustworthy the supplier is. And on top of that, usually you would also um, send some sort of quality questionnaire or you would go and audit the suppliers themselves as part of the evaluation process. And so that way, before you're making a product, you've done the best you can to vet the supplier, vet their facilities and their products and what they do. Then when the products come in, you've done due diligence to verify that any um, data that they've sent you is accurate. And if you're relying on any, um, quality characteristics yourself, you know, like if you have certain predefined, uh, requirements for purity and that sort of thing, um, well then you, you need to test for those things and, and back that up. And then of course, at the end, the final product that, you know, would then get tested too. Um, but usually the testing on the finished product is much simpler than the testing that would happen on the ingredients. And that's on purpose because if you front loaded everything Mm -hmm. and you've done all this quality control in the front Mm -hmm. end, then you can be more relaxed on the tail end because you have so much data and traceability, you know, backing up all of that. So, you know, I can only speculate why this happened, but commonly it would be because some of those aspects of GMP and just basic good quality management practices uh, were not implemented at the time that that batch was made. Correct. And, and I understand that. The thing about it is, is that, you know, it's one thing to talk about, like, this is probably a shitty analogy, but, you know, you can huff gasoline, but you don't want to drink it. You know what I'm saying? That is true. <laughs> okay. Well, it's kind of the same thing here. You know, you're vaporizing a freaking product that's going into your body through your lungs, directly in your bloodstream. Right, right. So if you're going to be making products that have that level of, you know, consumption or that that type of consumption, then unfortunately, in my opinion, I think that you need to have some better practices and and stuff. But I'm not just eating yes. the squalane or squalene. I'm not just right. eating it. You know, I'm, I'm or putting it on your skin, vaporizing or whatever. it. Yeah. Yes. Well, so there has to be a different level of responsibility, period. Well, and that's why the dietary supplement GMP rules exist. And it's it's something that so many people act like dietary supplements are unregulated, but there there are rules to follow and they are substantially more strict than the food GMP rules. But when most people in the industry say that they're GMP, they're usually not talking about dietary supplement GMP. And this is very important. Anyone listening, if you hear people making marketing claims about a company being GMP, ask them what CFR are they compliant with? Don't say anything else. Just say that and see how they respond. Even if you don't know what that means, just ask, say it. ask it and see what they say. <laughs> if they don't know what a CFR is, run away. 
if they say that they're compliant to food GMP and they're selling things that are more than food, then you should probably ask more questions or run away. Um, if they answer that we're compliant with CFR 111, then great, because that means that they're compliant with dietary supplement GMP rules. Of course, then you still want to see proof of that. Um, you know, either um, if anyone's like ever um, trying to do this with a company, this is actually some consulting I do, so I can I can actually help you vet um, and go through this process if that's mm -hmm. something anyone needs. But you know, there are questionnaires and stuff you can you can send and and try to figure this all out, but. Um, the, the difference between the food GMP and the dietary supplement GMP is primarily the testing and the, mm. the supplier evaluations and ingredient evaluations because of the idea that, um, people are using supplements for, um, you know, medical reasons. They're taking plant compounds and things at higher concentrations than would be normally found in food, you know? So there's all these, these different things. There's another side to this too, in that when it comes to GMP and, essential oils, which this falls into that realm because squalene is a terpene, like I said, and, um, uh, it, a lot of manufacturers when they sell terpenes, um, it's very, it's actually usually fairly rare to see on their safety data sheets that the approved use is for, um, inhalation right. or even food. Really? Um, wow. Yes. And this is a weird little thing with the FDA. So the FDA has said that, you know, a lot of um, herbal extracts and essential oils and things are generally regarded as safe or grass. But um, the wording in the law says that they're generally regarded as safe according to their intended use. Right. So that intended use is huge. Um, Real huge the FDA does not define what the intended use is for these compounds. That's for manufacturers to determine and then back up with data um, and then get their uh, certain approvals, depending on what it is, um, off of that if they need to. So um, once again, I haven't seen the safety data sheets for these compounds. I have no idea. I'm just speaking generally. But um, I know from working with product manufacturers that it's it's relatively hard to find a company that will sell you terpenes that on the safety data sheet, it says the intended use is inhalation or even food. Yeah, I, I get that. And, and I mean, that makes sense. Um, and, you know, and I guess I did not realize that, that squalene or whatever is a hydrocarbon terpene. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, well, here's a good example then where a terpene could be harmful to you. Yeah. versus medic medicinal absolutely yeah uh, yeah which is strange i wonder what it smells like shark yeah, liver i, shark I know <laughs> I, I guess so i don't know that i've ever actually been in the presence of pure squalene before uh, you've already mentioned it but i'm just gonna uh so according um to google uh squalene is a natural organic compound originally obtained for commercial purposes primarily from shark liver oil like you said and it's big. It's a big terpene. And that's that's the problem. Okay. So if anyone, I just did this while we we're talking just mm -hmm. to make sure I'm not talking out of my ass. But um, the the main problem with squalene and squalane is that they're, they're very long chains of isoprene units, much bigger than monoterpenes or sesquiterpenes. And so these heavy fats are the ones that are very problematic in terms of lipoid pneumonia. Um, and it Which makes, goes back to inhalation. Yes, essentially. and, and yeah. it makes it makes sense, right? Like if you're mm -hmm. 
if you're inhaling things that are very lightweight, then they're probably going to mm-hmm. go in your lungs and then you'll probably exhale them out. Or even if they get stuck in certain places, they're not necessarily going to clog up a whole lot and they'll, they're easier to move around and, and cough out, Choke and, up, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. But these heavier lipids, they get into the lungs and they settle and they coat the alveoli mm. and stuff, which is why, um, with lipoid pneumonia, you know, you have trouble breathing Well, your alveoli are covered in these heavy oils. Imagine, having your alveoli covered in um, cooled butter. Right. You know, where I mean, it's like, you're not going to be able to get oxygen. Where it's that. becoming a semi-solid, you know. So, yeah. um, you know, that's the problem. And that's why, you know, when we talk about terpenes, it's like, well, what terpenes are you talking about? They're a huge class of mm-hmm. compounds. Um, and monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes, which is pretty much all anyone's referring to when they talk about cannabis and terpenes, um, that's not the end-all be-all of terpenes. And even with cannabis, cannabis makes bigger terpenes and stuff too, usually more in the roots and stuff. But um, so squalene is an example of one of these heavier fats that, you know, the molecule is is quite big compared to something like myrcene or limonene or beta-caryophylline or anything like that. Um, and so that that nuance is, is extremely important. Sure. And it's, you know, the thing about it is even if you don't, if you say, all right, well, it was a mistake, it, it, honest mistake, we got it fixed, blah, 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 take it off the market, you still hurt yeah. You're still hurting people. And then also, yeah. too, you're still hurting the farm well, because that's, they're going to have to take that hit. Yes. Yeah. That's that's the. And it's like it's just it's it sucks because in, and this is something that happens in the food and dietary supplement world all the time. But you have producers that end up taking a reputation hit, you know, or, a uh, you know, perceptual hit of, you know, the quality of their products and things because of the fault of potentially a supplier. So even if a company does everything the right way, it's still possible for them to get screwed over. So like even if the manufacturer of the contaminated product, even if they had done all of their due diligence and asked all the right questions, um, it's still possible for weird things to happen. Mm-hmm. For, you know, maybe they get a... Um, batch of product and they test it and it looks clean and then they trust that data and then they get more shipments supposedly from that same batch and maybe those other batches are contaminated and you'd really have no reason to know that unless you tested every shipment that came in of the same batch which is very um, abnormal because then that gets the company into spending way too much money and way too much time and energy holding things up testing so there's always a balance there Um, and so I think that's important to recognize too. There is still some like benefit of the doubt that things could have still gone awry, even if they'd done everything right. And that will always be the case. Um, But it really, really sucks for the manufacturers that rely on those suppliers um, that really end up bearing more of the hit than anyone probably Um, just in the sense that those companies are usually smaller than the companies that they're, buying supplies from and um yeah so that's really unfortunate and it's it's also another thing that the gmp stuff you know that responsibility does travel all the way down the line too and so anyone using ingredients for anything should also be applying the same standards that the suppliers should be i mean it goes all the way so it's it's another one of those things that that sucks and it kind of has to be looked at as a learning opportunity to see how to mitigate that risk in the future. And for all companies to look at that as a, a chance to learn and say, you know, what are we doing in our operations that can p- 
prevent us from experiencing the same thing um, because you know unfortunately you, you can't trust is not enough and just trusting paperwork c of a's and stuff you get from things is not enough and you kind of just always have to have a certain level of cynicism um just to keep your own self safe um, sure with products you're handling well it just seems like carts have been under the gun since day one um like between the whole crisis we had with the carts and then, um, you know, just still ingredients still sneaking up in there and stuff. It seems like they need to find some sort of diluent that's just okay to use. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, well, I and, and some of the safety data on some of the stuff is still not there. Like, we don't know how big of a problem squalene and squalane actually are. We don't know how big of a problem vitamin E acetate is. You know, all these MCT oil, like, we know there are cases of lipoid pneumonia associated with these things. Teasing that out into more nuanced detail around cannabis vaping and all of these other things, it's it's muddy waters to wade through. Sure. And like you said, like I've done a lot of research on MSDS sheets mm -hmm. and it's hard to find the condition that, you know, the consuming it through a vapor or yeah, you're breathing not, it from combustion. You don't find that really on. Not if the company's smart because it opens them up to too much liability. Right. You know, and even when I was researching, there's a, I was researching a type of um, phosphorus that is used um, as a, uh, uh, it kills molds. Hmm. And um, it's just a form of phosphorus, um, but uh, it's, it's weird. The plant will uptake it, but not use it like a nutrient. Hmm. It just uptakes it and holds on to it. Interesting. Um, and it's found in a product that I was I was going to use to to combat. Um, uh, oh, it was a type of what was that mold we got? Um, I can't remember, but it was it was it was one of those uh, viruses where or molds that would just overnight just mm -hmm. take your plants out. So I was really in a rush and I found this product that was quote unquote organic, which it is, it's an organic sure, phosphorus, sure. but, but, uh, you know, like I said, it gets, it's really weird. It gets uptake by the plant and it does work, but it's not used as a nutrient it just sits in the mm -hmm. plant. So if you can't just flush it out, yeah. so you get to the end product and you still got that phosphorus in there and I'm like, oh, that's kind of creepy. I'm going to look it up. So I looked up the compound and on the MSDS sheets and we've talked about this uh nothing in terms of inhaling right except for i found a spot where it was talking about if you had a fire in the building ah right yeah. that mm -hmm. the phosphorus turns into a phosphorus oxide yeah which then becomes a um a carcinogen and so i at least got that far mm -hmm. where i'm like okay well if the building caught on fire which is basically combustion right that you're going to have this the pyrolysis, mm -hmm. these pyrolysis dynamics. So it yeah. just confirmed that, yeah, it's a carcinogen. And even though it's organic, you don't want to smoke it. Right. And it won't be coming out of the plant either. Well, and that's, you know, this relates to, I think we've talked about this before, but keeping in mind that the, the chemistry of what's in a product and the chemistry of what you actually ingest can be two very different things, especially when you're vaporizing or smoking, um, but even when you eat things, I mean, you know, what are the metabolites of the things that, you know, you're going to eat there's it, well it goes back to like cannabis is inedible you you eat it and you take it through your stomach and it gets processed by your liver it's a completely different yeah. thing compared to just thc getting um decarbed into thc 
here's TCA, a, you know, B and D carbon. So there was a cool study um, that I think is worth mentioning that came out, I think last year. Yeah, it was in 2020 that looked at the chemicals in cannabis smoke. And it was a really good study because this is the chemicals in cannabis smoke had been studied a bunch before, but this one was a fairly exhaustive study. And one thing they found that I don't think I'd seen in any other studies um, was that when you smoke cannabis, um, you're also inhaling 11-OH THC. Some of the THC that you're burning is turning into 11-OH THC like it would in your liver. Interesting. Um, I know that. Which may explain why the effects of smoking are different than vaping. Um, you know, there's there's just some quality that is different when you smoke flour sure. versus yes. smoking a vape pen or an mm-hmm. extract or mm-hmm. something. Um, and so that might be part of that is, you know, that what would normally be a metabolite when you eat THC that's generally responsible for the unique effects of, of edibles yes. and is more potent than THC itself, that that is actually coming through in the smoke as well when you're just smoking flour uh, just through the chemical changes happening to THC um, in that you know environment. With so you can, get, you can get to that molecule or whatever without having to put it through your liver? Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah, it's a neat little little tidbit. Have you uh, have you heard anything more about the Delta Eight? Um, I've seen a couple. I've seen a couple articles recently talking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's that's the main thing. It's just more and more awareness. I've written a couple articles for some companies about it, Um, but it's just this the same old stuff. Sure, no, I was just curious. People learning Mm -hmm. about it. I just think it's a a matter of time before that door is closed um, on on the hemp world. The USDA did release their new um, hemp rules. Um, recently and there were some modest changes to them that the industry was happy about um Are you ter- uh, in terms of uh like the thc content or yeah that they um they're giving more leniency if you accidentally have above 0.3 percent it can be up to one percent before they start to treat you like a criminal so um you know that's good because it was like 0.6 i believe mm-hmm. um, so a very narrow range before oh yeah um, you'd <laughs> possibly get thrown in jail um so they upped to that. They changed the window for harvesting to 30 days. Um, so it gives people much more wiggle room. Um, they also delayed the um, DEA registrations for testing labs for a year, which I already knew they were going to do. But, um, you know, they officially announced that um, they're not doing away with that. So that means that labs that want to do hemp testing like should have been starting on it last year, but you need to get your DA license. Uh, the federal government is very, very slow. So if you're just jumping on that now, get ready to wait a while. I mean, maybe not, but in general, from anyone that I've talked to who's gone through the process of getting a DA scheduling license, um, they say it just takes forever. Like it's not hard, but it just takes a long time to hear back from them and go through the hoops, you know, and all of that. But um, so those are some of the main takeaways or other little things, but um but yeah, but concerning Delta 8, I really, I still really, really think that either in this coming new iteration of the farm bill that'll, you know, be discussed and voted on in a year or two or what comes after that, um, I think they're going to change the definition of THC to all tetrahydrocannabinols. I just I feel really strongly about that. Yeah, you had mentioned that and it seems probably that, like the way it's going to be. Yeah, and I just don't see a way around it. And the the delta eight thing one thing that's taken people a while to wrap their heads around is that it's unique it's not an extract like these are these are not extracts these are synthetically produced 
chemicals um, with chemical, usually often chemical byproducts and things. And so I think now that, you know, I had a store, a CBD store recently asked me about Delta 8 and they were like, Delta 8 sounds awesome because you get these medical benefits that you would get from THC, but you don't get as intoxicated and, you know, all these things. And I was like, yeah, that's, it certainly has a lot of potential and that's really exciting. But there's this quality issue to it that we don't understand very well at all. We don't know what's in a lot of these, you know, these products. We know that there are all sorts of peaks on the chromatograms that shouldn't be there. Uh, but we don't know what they are. We don't know what the safety profile is. And also, by the way, did you know that the concentration of Delta-8 is not regulated? So sometimes you don't even know how much Delta-8 is in these products. And sometimes that's on purpose, um, depending on the company and what their demog target demographic is. And as I've been talking to stores and they've been learning that. They're like, oh, okay. Like this is, obviously there's a lot of great potential with Delta-8 THC, but we got to be careful and we can't treat it exactly the same as some of the other hemp products that, you know, are quickly coming onto the market, like, um, you know, all these CBG products and, and other things like that. Um, in terms of the hemp world, that CBG has gotten big, man. It has. Yeah. I, I took some, um, have you uh, ever CBD, smoked? uh, CBG tincture before I came over. Oh, interesting. I, uh, I've got some CBD or hemp CBG mm -hmm. flower. I flower. do too. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Actually, had a listener send it to us. Nice, <laughs> <laughs> but we haven't tried it yet. Um, I haven't. I haven't experienced it. Is it? Does it have a pretty good calming effect? That's. It's so hard for me to tell. I mean, it's it's hard for me to tell because I'm like, one, my tolerance to like cannabis in general is to a certain degree that I I'm always like, okay, is placebo effect or I you know it's. <laughs> Hard to hard to tease out. So I don't know. I get people a lot of times that want me to try stuff and give them feedback, and I'm like, it's fine. I don't know. Like, you know, I feel like someone that doesn't use cannabis products regularly might see more profound effects than I'm going to see from it. Um, I don't know, but um, it did seem to help with. Um, my wife was having some sleep issues, and CBG seemed to help a little bit with that. But once again, like. Was it the CBG or just whatever else, what she ate that day? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the placebo effect is so challenging to tease out, especially with cannabis, because the endocannabinoid system influences placebo effects, at least when it comes to pain placebo and probably other placebos as well. So it's just, yeah, really hard to, to tease out. And um, just me being the way I am, I, I'm just kind of cautious to say that something did anything <laughs> yeah and i often wonder like when it comes to like maybe the fuller spectrum cbds uh like i know there's certain cannabis flower wise so essentially full spectrum um flower that will take care of my nausea mm -hmm, and then sure. there's a whole lot of flower that won't mm -hmm. so i wonder if cbd full spectrum is kind of like that too where you could I'm have sure. different formulations that may or may not work better yeah, and you know, one of my takeaways with um, Dr. Mary was that there's a there's a possibility that when we think about the nuanced differences between cannabis varieties, that you know, we for the latest several years or so have assumed that a lot of that's driven by terpenes, mm -hmm. and the reason we think that is largely based on research that is. Uh, that came out in the early 2000s and stuff that showed that when you were 
looking at cannabinoids in cannabis flower and looking at clinical outcomes, that there wasn't a correlation between um, the reported like different effects and the cannabinoid profiles. But the cannabinoids they were measuring, uh, sometimes it was only THC and CBD. Sometimes it was you know the, the handful of the major five. And something that I really took home from talking to Dr. Mary was that the minor cannabinoids really matter a lot. Um, and he's found that just in the context of cancer, that there are certain situations where you need three cannabinoids, you know, together, and all of a sudden you've got this powerful combination that's fighting leukemia, um, or these two cannabinoids that are fighting this line of breast cancer and things. And so the, and he, he even, um, sort of caught me when I mentioned the term minor cannabinoids. He was like, no, I don't like that phrase, minor cannabinoids, because that implies, one, that they're in minor concentrations, which they may not be because we haven't measured them, so we don't know. And he said, two, it presumes that if they're in low concentrations that they're not going to have much of an effect. And he was mm. like, both of those things are wrong. Um, and so lately I've been really taking a step back and thinking about, well, maybe the minor cannabinoid content is maybe the primary driver between some of these nuanced effects. Because as we try to do research on the terpenes and to see how they're influencing receptor dynamics and everything, we're not finding much. Um, and plus the fact that the terpenes are so easily um, degraded and, and in low concentrations, you know, and, and different issues like that, they're so small and so... Uh, volatile and everything get um, you tend to lose a lot of them and they they transform and stuff and so I don't know I'm I'm sort of like oscillating back to this place where I I want to better understand that early research looking at cannabinoid profiles and the differences in effects and whether you know there's some things we missed there because we didn't necessarily have the tools to look and I think if we went back especially based on some of the research coming out of Israel we might have a different perspective if we were testing for like a, over a hundred cannabinoids rather than five or 10. Um, but I don't, I don't know, but that's just something that's kind of been like stirring in me that like this focus on cannabinoids, I mean, on, on terpenes. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's it. So going back to what you're saying of like some varieties helping with nausea or not, it, it may be other cannabinoids and in, in certain, uh, ratios to one another that are, that are driving that primarily who knows. It could be an individual thing too. Like maybe Absolutely. it's just me, Absolutely. my chemistry. Yeah. And it, in, in reality, it's all of that combined. Sure. Right. Right. And, it, but, but just so people know, I mean, you, you can't, it's hard to really generalize how cannabis is going to work for you Yes, at certain, at certain doses or whatever. So, you know, that's, I often wonder, you know, if, uh, if doctors are going to know how well cannabis might help you. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's gonna be one of these things where, you know, because I have friends that are nurses and doctors that have quite a bit of clinical experience now, and they can make good assumptions, which is what happens in medicine in general, you, as a clinician, you observe average effects. And so then you're like, okay, well, if I give this to this person, most likely what will happen is this, but also could be any other number of things. Um, but they usually don't present it that vaguely. It's just more of like, this is an antidepressant and it, you know, it's going to do this. Um, but what they know in their minds is that, okay, this is this compound that has been shown to on average, you know, for 30% of people or so is probably going to have this effect. Um, and, and cannabis is <laughs> everything, but cannabis is, is the exact same way that clinicians will 
get a general sense of what how certain cannabis products affect people on average and then use that as a starting point but i think it's always i mean we're we're just in this huge movement towards individualized medicine anyway um mm-hmm. that you know that what works for you may not work for me and that in general like we've got to take more holistic approaches and try to find you know do titrations and try to find um what works or doesn't work. And it's a really long involved process. It can take years to figure out what. Well, I was going to say, it's almost could be like, you know, antidepressants in the sense that, you know, it could take a little while to find. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate to simplify it to this, but just find the right strain or find mm-hmm. the right, you know, Absolutely. whatever combination of cannabinoids that you need that's in a certain plant. I don't know. It can um, take two or three months before mm-hmm. you sort of the effects of cannabis plateau. Um, so, this is this was found in a lot of like the epidiolex research and stuff. But um, when people are taking cannabinoids like CBD, um, they may get some response initially, or they may not. Sometimes that response may take a while. These compounds, you know, build in the body because they're fatty and everything, and they're they're influencing the activity of the body too, which can sort of reach a tipping point after a certain amount of time. And so I think, if I remember correctly. I think some of the epidiolex research found that it took upwards of 10 weeks or so mm. to find those plateaus. And so if you didn't keep a patient on it that long, then you really didn't know how they were going to respond. Um, and that's hard for people because that's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you should, something. yeah. And you should really journal that too. Yes. I mean, you yeah. know, I, we've talked about this, both of us, I've actually kept a journal before and, and you've talked yep. quite a bit about it actually. Um, and it, that's kind of the important part for yourself. Is just, if you're serious about it. Like yes, that's, that's what I'm saying. If you want to be serious about having it as a medicine and working for you properly, yep. then yeah. Absolutely. I, I every Pretty much every class, every talk I get, I end up talking about journaling because inevitably people have that question. What strain, what, how do I get started, you know, sort of thing. And um, that's the best thing. And there are apps coming out now. Um, that also like help people track their cannabis use and mm-hmm. stuff. And um, what I'm interested to see is a lot of these journals and apps and things kind of have um, have some pretty good data points, but I think they could be better. So I'm interested to see how they evolve um, over the next several years because we'll probably end up with some sort of dominating app that will you know mm-hmm. sort of serve that function with some uh, ways of aggregating data and providing insights and stuff that are really help doctors and, and patients. Um, and especially part, I mean, there's some really cool tools out there like Canify and Canakeys. Both of those are these tools that allow you to plug in some information about conditions and things, and then get shortcutted to research about those conditions in cannabis. So when you partner tools like that with apps that, you know, are sort of like these journaling apps mm-hmm. and, taking in go. all that data and, and bringing all that together. Like that's that's gonna be, I think, really the way forward, especially given the education deficit of so many clinicians when it comes you know, to cannabis. Yeah, and you know, if you were smart and you had the money, man, you could almost make an app that that uh, integrated all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and exactly. uh, And actually make it a, a medical app, like mm-hmm. a real legit, yeah. like Targeted medical. for, yes. I mean, and that's that's how like, like Canify um, how it got started and where they're at with that now is it's designed for, I, I mean, anybody can do it, but really what they want is for it to be adopted by hospitals. 
So it's like, okay, you've got a patient in front of you that's telling you, you know, they've got these diagnoses and they're, you know, whatever they're struggling with this, like put all that into this basic survey. And then very quickly you'll get, you know, pointed to the research that you need to actually read to, you know, make an informed decision with that patient in that moment. And so short, all those shortcuts are huge for getting cannabis um, better integrated into healthcare at large. One thing I really liked about uh, Green Earth, is it Green Earth Medicinals? Mm-hmm. Green Earth? Yeah. I, I get that confused with Good Earth. I know. Yeah, Green Earth, know, Good right? Earth. I actually had to do some editing on that because uh, I kept saying the wrong Whoopsie. thing. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, I, I like that about them is they actually were, they push for pharmacies and doctors mm-hmm. to to use these appropriately. Uh, which is really cool. Um, I do think that they're still doctors and and pharmacies are still lacking the oh, info yeah. we just talked yeah. about, though. Well, that's, um, that's and that might be another option too. Not to interrupt you, but no, you know that it. might be another option if you can integrate that app into your life. You could almost maybe also have pharmacies and doctors integrate into that mm-hmm. app. They could see your info and say, okay, look, well, this works. That doesn't work. I see what's you've been trying this. You've been trying that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And that third party perspective is so important because you could look at all of that yourself and not see the patterns that someone else would see by looking at your info. You know, like you're jotting everything down and keeping up with it. And you may think that by doing that, you actually know what works, but then someone else lays eyes a on professional that. And that then they're like, well, actually, it. did you right. notice, you know, this and this that? Correlate, or, yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and that's a big part of the, um, teaching that I'm doing now. So the John Patrick University that I'm doing the course development for, they're primarily focused on educating. A lot of their students are medically focused nurses and doctors doing continuing education and that sort of thing, um, which I find really, really exciting because it's hitting a population of learners that I think um, will have some of the biggest impact because getting healthcare people better educated um, so that people, when they do present their cannabis use to their doctor, their doctor has some, uh, informed basis on how to respond to that. Well, some legitimate information too. Yeah. yeah, Because I think there's a lot of harm right now that's happening when someone is genuinely trying to treat a medical condition, they go to their doctor, they talk about cannabis use and then their doctor's like, Whoa, cannabis, like, uh, no, not comfortable with that. Well, and as and, you know, doctors don't want to treat with other medicines if you're consuming cannabis. And yeah. then in, in my experience, if the doctor says, okay, you want to treat yourself with cannabis, that's fine. You do that. I'll write you a script. But that's where it stops. Yeah. There's no support after that. That's where usually. it stops. You just, yeah. you go buy weed Yeah, and that's, it's yeah. not really medicine. No. I no. mean, it's a shot in the dark is what it is. That's being a gatekeeper is, yeah. is really yeah. what that is. But there's really no like you said, follow up or program or something that you can follow or, or document or journal or anything like that. Yeah. And I think people really um, underestimate how many clinicians still assume that cannabis really has no true medical value. Right. Um, they just want to get high. Yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> or like the, the medical side is being, it's a narrative being pushed to legitimize drug use, you know, which is kind of one of those things of like, well, why is drug use a problem? Like we could have that conversation too. Well, but- no, I, I want, okay, <laughs> this is a good segue. And I really want to talk about this. This is kind of what I had, I wanted to finish big. And that is February 1st. Mm-hmm. It's coming. Yeah. Now, what does that mean for everybody <laughs> in the world? Nothing, but it means everything for us. Oregon, yeah. Uh, for Oregon, we're going to go legal on 
excuse me, let me, let me rephrase yeah. that. We're going to decriminalize uh, personal amounts of drugs. Yep. All drugs. Yep. Uh, and I've already said it before, but that's like in, it's a gram of heroin or what? It's like MDMA. 40, yeah. Like 40 hits of acid, 40 and... hits of acid, 14 grams of mushrooms. Uh, you can have a gram of either heroin or MDMA. I think you can have up to two grams of meth. It's, I think so. And it, it's, it's very much carved out in a way that in general, it allows personal users to possess quite a bit for personal use, but still not getting into that area where you might suspect that they're selling. Like that, that's, see, that's why they chose that. Absolutely. And I'm honestly, I, we haven't seen it play out yet, but I, I really believe that, that that's a smart thing to do. <clears throat> if I could look back at my life, I've been lucky enough because I've carried drugs before. Yeah. Drugs that would put me in jail for a while. Okay. <laughs> Even with cannabis. Yeah. When it yep. was illegal. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But but uh, but to destroy your life over just a personal amount, mm -hmm. it, it seems absolutely stupid. And I could have been in those situations many a times. And, and like you pointed out, you know, these limits are are fairly, you know, those are personal amounts. Two grams of meth, dude, you don't need two more. No, you do not. Okay, trust me, <laughs> especially around this methford here. You don't need more of that shit. Uh, and same with heroin. I mean, you know, and and you, all that money is going to help with the rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So if you want help, you're going to be able to have it. And bottom line, we already know this. It, people will still deny it. But bottom line is no one will will no one will be successful in in quitting a drug the, unless they're willing and have decided to do so. Yeah. Does absolutely. that make sense? Oh yeah. So you can go to every AA meeting, you can go and get detoxed 10 times, you can yeah. go and get, and you're still gonna go back to it until you make that choice in your head that you're gonna quit and then get the help you need. Right. Because you can't do it alone. I get that. But and that's what those you know rehab centers when, when we start putting money into these yeah. rehabilitation yeah. centers then that's what's going to happen um and and that's great i think that's perfect because honestly there's not a lot of help already mm -hmm. like yeah. as an alcoholic unless you got a few thousand dollars sitting in your bank account which most alcoholics don't right uh you can't get help you know um and if you can get help, it's something simple like AA, not real treatment, not right. not not a detox and, and a, not individualized like really right. intensive yeah. treatment that some people need. And so I think it's great. And if you, if you think you're going to destroy your life over a gram of meth or whatever, I mean, maybe you shouldn't be doing any drugs anyway. Right. Know? Well, and it, it, I mean, I think the the goal with a lot of this is trying to move drug use out of the area of criminality and more into um treating it like it's healthcare and, yes you know. like it's a health issue or or something that yeah exactly because there are yeah. going to be some people that can go out once a month party with your friends with a gram of coke yeah and then go back to work on monday and work another month and then maybe go out on a party and do there's people that actually can do that yep um i, I wouldn't recommend it no, you know, but I've, I've known people but, but like But there that. are people yeah. that can do it. Like with me, I cannot, I really believe I cannot get addicted to nicotine. Mm -hmm. I have tried. <laughs> I've tried. I even chewed for two years. But the second I stuck it down, 
no withdrawal, nothing. Yeah. Just That's so certain, yeah. I think certain substances, certain chemistries, mm-hmm. sure. you're going to be susceptible to certain things and maybe not susceptible to yeah. others, but you know, be careful with that. Absolutely. Um, and like, I am um, all animals use drugs that, I mean, there are so many examples of elephants, not, not just humans, monkeys, but all sorts of animals mm-hmm. that, that they like that fermented fruit. They go out of their way to change their consciousness. This is a basic quality. Reindeer. Yeah, I mean, so many different things, even even insects. And so this is a, a basic quality that is a part of life itself. And so the idea that we're going to just make that go away, I think, is crazy. It um, is dumb. It's just absolutely it's it's and it, it prevents, dissonance. You're, you're not accepting. No, it. and it, it prevents the real discussion that needs to happen, which is what does responsible drug use look like and how do we talk about that and how do we teach our kids about that? And, you know, like just ignoring a problem. And we we've talked about this before, too, but you're you're disabling generations of people to maturely interact with drugs. And uh, Carl Hart just put out a uh, book called Drug Use for Grownups that I need to get. That's a yes, I Um, heard about that. And I'd like to check that out. Yeah, I've followed Carl Hart for a long time. Did you Um, hear he was on Joe Rogan? I, I've seen some clips. I haven't seen the whole thing. It's a great but, interview, yeah, man. You should listen to it. Some of the clips I saw were really good. I'd love to talk to to talk to him myself. Um, but those kinds of discussions are the ones that we we have to have. I mean, drug use isn't going away. It never has. We've tried prohibition in different forms all throughout society's history, and it it just doesn't work. Um, and so treating it as the health issue that it is, and taking a harm reduction approach. Of like, except, you know, what people are uncomfortable with, with harm reduction is that you then have to say like, okay, we're accepting that people are going to do drugs. We're accepting that it's, you know, just a understood thing that this is going to happen. And so many people are really, really uncomfortable mm-hmm. with, you know, cause they, they want this idealistic world to exist, um, for whatever, all these different reasons they have in their mind. And so it's a very almost painful thing to give into that notion of like, well, people are just going to do it. And there, there is some needed caution around that attitude as well, because you, you're trying to say that humans are going to use drugs no matter what. So how do we keep people safe and get people educated to make good choices? But it is true that you don't want that message to get twisted into a condonement of drug use mm-hmm. that people should use drugs. You know, well, there's a, there's a, it's easy in people's minds to jump from people will do drugs to people should do drugs. Right. And I just want to add though, to that, what you're saying, I, I hear exactly what you're saying because that's what a lot of other people will say. Right. That are, and the thing with that is, is that, uh, you're not, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I completely lost. Keep going. No oh worries. My God. I just thought <laughs> I'd edit that part out. It'll come back around. Uh, but to have help, I think, is really the only answer because we can deny it all we want. Uh, people are going to do drugs. Yeah. And here's the deal. Like I said, having it available, easily available. It's it's like going back to like when you pay, like when I pay my cell bill or, or any bill, don't you think that a company, the the they would make that transaction the easiest thing you could do right to pay your bill 
<laughs> Although they don't. But there's some places that you're just like, I have to try 13 different things and I get kicked charter off spectrum. and charter. <laughs> like, I just want to pay my bill. I want to give you money, but you won't take it. <laughs> I literally went through that experience like three days ago. <laughs> so you, it's like, I get it that I need to pay you. I want to. Yeah, but you're making it impossible. <laughs> so if I really didn't want to pay you, I would have been out a long time ago. No, but how that relates to this is that making treatment that mm -hmm. available. Yeah. yeah that yeah. seems mm -hmm. to me, if you need to make treatment the easiest thing to get into. Yes. Yep. You know, you can walk in, you truly want help. You say it, maybe that's one of the prerequisites. You it walk is, in yeah. and you want help, say you want help. Yep. And then we'll take you in and we'll, we'll do that. But it shouldn't be hard to do. No. And right now seeking help is either too expensive or just too hard to get into or intimidating and yeah. i think that's another thing too is you know there's a stigma around drug treatment as well as there's a stigma around just like going to a therapist for your mental health mental health yeah you know? so and depression and this and whatever and addiction and things it is it's both a physiological and psychological thing so the mental health component is obviously a, a huge part of that um but there is the stigma in our culture you know still no matter where you go in the country, because I've now been almost everywhere and I see the stigma everywhere I go. Um, so people, you know, there's a social side to this, that they're nervous about the implications of going to treatment and what other people will think of them. Or um, maybe they aren't educated about what the treatment process will be like. And so they have ideas in their mind about what they might be stepping into if they get into treatment and maybe they won't like it or, you know, or whatever, and not understanding that there are multiple ways of doing treatment and you can go to different places that specialize in different approaches uh, and that sort of thing. So yeah, absolutely. It, it ought to be easier. It ought to be cheap, well, and cheaper, free. That's it, the thing. You should not have to pay $10,000 to get 90 days of help. Right. Absolutely. And there's some places that are even worse than that. You go to Beverly Hills, California, yeah. Oh, whatever. Yeah, right. Is is ridiculous? Yeah, and they know that there'll be a constant it, revolving door yeah, of celebrities. Yeah, it shouldn't that need be it. that way. It shouldn't be that way. Um, Absolutely not. And this relates to psilocybin as well, because mm -hmm. we've also got the uh, medical psilocybin legalization here, and you know that's a to me that that fits into this too, because just like with addiction treatment, getting alternative forms of mental help in the form of psychedelic therapy like that ought to be very easy to do yeah. without a stigma like mm -hmm. it's just a thing where you you go somewhere and you say hey i'm struggling with this and i want to know if this is well, the right option and you know yeah move and forward and this is where i wanted to go with it is that i often wonder if, if once we decriminalize these small amounts if we can't also maybe maybe kind of skirt some of that stuff in for help too meaning mm -hmm. Maybe we can get MDMA treatments in the future. I think. I mean, I think or, that'll that'll come or, or, next. You know, yeah. LSD or whatever it is, uh, uh, ibogaine. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever it is. It, hopefully, that window will allow us to kind of sneak into those areas to hopefully be able to actually treat people with that stuff as a medicine. Absolutely, because they've yeah. found some great stuff with MDMA. Yeah, if I mean, you use it right, and that's what I think will definitely come after you know? psilocybin is MDMA. I mean, the the psychedelic legalization flow that seems to be happening is. You've got, if you want to consider cannabis a psychedelic, you usually have cannabis, ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, and then you start getting into, um, you know, when you when you start talking about things like LSD and and 
other psychedelics beyond those, it, it gets a little touchier and the, the research isn't as strong and the potential, um, you know, because LSD trips are longer, it causes certain complications in a, a clinical setting. Absolutely. Uh, whereas psilocybin being limited to potentially a work day, you know, five to eight hours or yeah, so. Yeah, exactly. Can, you know, you can actually you can manage that. Manage that just professionally. Um, uh, so, you know, some of the other things, you know, uh, I saw recently someone got the Supreme well, Court to rule in favor of them for ayahuasca, yes. um, for religious uses recently. And yes. so I think a side stream, the religious thing, which the Trump administration gave a lot more power to um, trying to claim that certain things are for religious purposes. The Supreme Court seems to be evidencing that they're really um, going to support religious freedoms, uh, which presents a very interesting opportunity because it creates another avenue for people to gain access to entheogenic plants and things. Um, it, it reminds me, it's so funny because they, they did these things not to try to get people to where they can do drugs legally, but um, it reminds me of these old writings from the 60s and 70s that Timothy Leary was writing about, like, here's how you start a church and here's how you, you know, really make this serious and so that you can have this uh, legal defense, you know, around your your ritualistic entheogenic plant use. And now there's like a revival um, of that again, where people are now like, oh, the Supreme Court is, you know, really uh, seems to be strongly favoring religious freedoms. So how do we, you know, use that to our advantage? And there's, I think we'll see more and more cases pressing on that, which is then going to have implications in different states and stuff about things like ayahuasca and DMT primarily. Um, um, so I've yeah. heard a lot of good stuff about Ibogaine too. Yeah, like Ibogaine. Where, because it's very like, one thing I guess about Ibogaine is it's very self-reflective. Mm -hmm. Like you think mushrooms or LSD makes you self-reflect, you try Ibogaine and it's like, ooh, It's oh, used a lot shoot. for addiction treatement. Yeah, um, like what am I doing? <laughs> I, from what I understand, the toxicity profile of Ibogaine is not as favorable as a lot of other psychedelics, which yeah. has been a holdup to getting it. But there are some modified forms of I Ibogaine that are being developed that might have better toxicity profiles um and then there's all sorts of um you know there are a lot of companies now that are taking traditional psychedelics and using them as a skeleton to make novel psychedelics that are in some ways they're basically semi-synthetics because they're just maybe stripping off a functional group here and there and replacing them with another one they're not totally making just crazy new molecules but they're just just changing the ornamentations that's on LSD or something like that and trying to find ways to get the therapeutic profile, the safety profile, all of these things within a certain range that it'd be as simple to get them through FDA, through the FDA process as it was for MDMA. Because MDMA has got this nice quality that, you know, it can be psychedelic, but it, you know, it usually doesn't, um, isn't, isn't too strong in that sense. And it's more emotional and sort of energetic you know, and kind of that. that well, here's way. the deal. What the, you, you were talking about that gentleman with the book that just came out. The, Carl Hart. Yeah. yeah, Carl Hart. Okay. Well, he had pointed out two things. One was that people don't realize that these drugs, like uh, this is how he explained it. So I'm mm -hmm. just, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just, this is secondhand here. But he said that, you know, MDMA is only like one, like you take one little branch off and stick another little piece mm -hmm. in or whatever. And it's meth. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. these drugs can be very close, especially psychedelics. You mean, mm -hmm. psychedelics can be just very, very similar, but with just one little piece changed. Yep. Uh, and then, 
it changes the whole. Well, and think about like the, you know, DMT and psilocybin are so, and serotonin right. are so similar in structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see the vast differences that just those three compounds have. Right, right. Vast body. differences. And and uh, what he did bring up that was something that I think needs to happen in Oregon. Now, I think we need to now somehow provide affordable drug testing kits. Yes, yeah. Not not drug testing pee kits. I yeah. mean, literally, you take test your, your drugs and see your, how pure your, they are. Your, your, your 0.1 milligrams or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever, 10 milligrams of your just whatever little bit you have and, and drop it in there and find out what the hell you got. Yeah. That would be cool. Ideally, just basic color indication yes, tests. Yes, that's what I mean. Just yep. to make sure that what you're getting is fairly legitimate. I think that should be the next step because I, I, I am a little scared to think that people are still going to buy drugs, obviously, mm-hmm. but they're still po- probably buying garbage drugs. Yeah. Especially like heroin. And now there may there may be an incentive for and just to, just so I get it out yeah. first is like with heroin it could have fentanyl in it. Yes. Well then you could tell yep. with your drug kit. Yep. You know what I mean? So yep. go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And um one of the arguments that sort of goes in favor of the folks that weren't in favor of the decriminalization, but it does provide a mild incentive for some dealers to adulterate more product knowing that users will feel more comfortable buying more and possessing more frequently, that sort of thing. Um, It provides a slight incentive for nefarious dealers to take advantage of that. Now, how much that actually happens, you know, there's so many politics even in like black market dealing that, you know, people still have reputations to uphold and things. So um, I don't know how much of that's really going to happen, but there is, you know, sort of sort of room for that. And I don't know if you saw like in Germany, they're finding fentanyl and cannabis. Mm. Um, just ridiculous stuff. And going back to this, now I'm on totally different <laughs> tangents, but thinking about D8, D8 THC, <laughs> there are companies now spraying hemp flower with D8 THC so that um, people can try to <laughs> like have legal bud again. I'm like, what? <laughs> What are we doing, guys? What are we doing? I mean, I get it. I get it. There's there's a niche for it, and and some people will. will if dig you can it, do it, it's going to be done. Yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, it's just once again coming from the lab and seeing the the uh, a lot of the contaminants and stuff in Delta Eight THC. I'm like, you're taking cannabis as it is, perfectly fine, and spraying it with something that has God knows what in it, and now you're getting people to you know, I just I don't know. It's just a funny funny thing. The products that you see that hit the market if there's some legal wiggle room to do it. Well, and like I said, I, I think that, um, you know, if we could purify, like in, in due time, I, I hate to see things regulated completely by, you know, uh, a, you know, some form of government. But the good thing is that if we did it right, we could make it to where these drugs could be a lot purer. Yeah, absolutely, and you know and, I mean? and thus safer. That's what I mean. Yep, absolutely. And 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 Carl Hart, you said mm-hmm. his name. He made that a point. He's like, when you get a pure form of a drug of a substance, pure MDMA, pure mm-hmm. cocaine, pure this, pure that. It's not nearly as bad for you as if you had the street version of it. Yeah. Which God knows how it was cooked or yep. what non lab it was in or homogenous. It could so many things. Yep. And um. And he's like, but if we could regulate it to where we got it down to where they're actually pure drugs, that would solve some of the, you know, mm-hmm. bad problems, um, whether that's fentanyl on weed or freaking mm-hmm. 
crocodile shit that makes your skin peel or whatever, <laughs> you know, it, you wouldn't have to worry about that. And, um, and, uh, but he was saying that, you know, 99% of the time street drugs, you know, I don't know about cannabis, but a lot of these powdered street drugs are just cut and filled mm -hmm. with shit. And a lot of caffeine is a lot added of caffeine. to a lot of stuff. MDMA and... is probably meth usually. And it's yeah. like, you know, so I, it's, it would seem that we could, if we could focus more on making it a little bit cleaner for people too. Yeah. Well, and that's, so now we're getting, that's kind of a hard thing to now, do though. Now, now, now we're getting into the hard condoning, because condoning, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, you know, because so to give my my personal opinion and perspective on it, I think that's where it needs to go. I think ultimately to maximize public health and safety, personally, I think that legalizing all drugs is the way to go and providing access um, for some of those reasons, because the purer the drug is, it tends to be safer. If people have a safe place to use certain drugs, they tend to be safer if they have access to clean, I mean, clean needles, for instance, well, you know, okay, all, so, all these different pieces. Right. Um, It'd be like comparing, you know, getting a morphine shot at a hospital mm -hmm. or shooting up with some getting dirty, your buddy to come like, you know, shoot you up with some random shit. Uh, you know, in the hospital, you're getting a pure morphine. And if something goes wrong, you got help. You've got they're help. monitoring. But yeah, you, you got pure morphine. You got a clean needle. You got a professional injecting it. And so, you know, but then you, you get into this weird conversation where then you're like, well, so now you're talking about setting up drug use centers and, you know, encouraging people to just go, you know, use drugs when they want. And I, I think there are ways to model it where it, it wouldn't be quite that extreme or crazy, but, you know, it, it just be a sense of like, if this is a decision you've made, recognizing the risks involved and all of these different things, and you've made this decision well, then the safest, best way to do that is in this this model and to have the easiest access to um, addiction treatment and the easiest access to basic health care in case just whatever goes wrong. I mean, even, you know, just seeing in these vaccines, you know, there are some people that respond to that have allergic reactions to things that you wouldn't expect, um, you know, whether it's the PEG and the vaccines that's causing these allergic reactions mm -hmm. or whatever, but, um, you know, weird stuff happens. And so knowing that you've got easy access to healthcare, that you're not going to go to prison or ruin your life or the lives of those that love you and that you love by admitting your drug use and seeking help. There's just so many things that really simplify the whole issue and just turn it into, you know, education. Let's teach kids about the reality so that they make good decisions mm -hmm. in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then if they make those decisions, they've got access to the resources to stay safe. And if things are getting out of hand, having the culture around the drug use um, being such that rather than people attacking that person for having a drug use problem, they're more supportive and trying to you know, help usher that person into a situation yeah. where they can get help. Because right now there's so much vilification of drug use that- Right, well, you, know, you taught a lot of times those people get tossed away. Right. They're, they're homeless they're on the street and they're yes. just- And forgotten. Out of sight, out of mind, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but there could be, you know, stipulations to, to do. And, and you know what, honestly, I don't see someone, unless you're really a drug addict, maybe, I don't see someone going down to a facility to get high mm -hmm. recreationally. Right. Like, hey, Jason, yo, you want to go party at the facility? Right. No. 
you're obviously hooked on something and you want to get it safely. Mm-hmm. And like you said, then they can deal with those people that way. But for me, I'm not going to just go down to a facility so I can do a grandma Coke. Right. And there, there's other aspects to it too. Like in, in places like Portugal and other places where they've experimented with different levels of drug legalization, you know, you tend to see that um, just like, even if someone is um, wanting to use recreationally and, you know, not be around areas that are safe or anything. I mean, just the um, levels of overdoses that like the, the frequency of overdoses drops so much just because people aren't afraid to call for an ambulance, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. just that alone. And that's why, you know, one movement that's happening, even or take your buddy, like if your buddy's overdosing and they're like, I don't want to take him to the fucking hospital. Right. I'm not going to jail. Yeah. You know, that dynamic alone. and, And there is a federal push to institute some law that would provide a safety, a legal shield around people in an overdose situation mm-hmm. so that they don't hesitate to, to call. So there's a lot of people that die that don't have to simply because either themselves or the people they're with are too afraid um, to, to get that help themselves. And in that situation, you shouldn't be thinking about um, whether you're going to go to jail or not because you were sitting at home and decided to use a drug and it went wrong. Like, you know, it's that just shouldn't be a part of what's going through your, your head. head. It should just be like, oh, my gosh, this person needs help. Let's get them to the hospital. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. Just like it would be with any other medical emergency. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of dynamics to it. And this is something I've thought a lot about. Um, and I I just always come back to I, I just don't see a better way than, you know, full just full legalization getting rid of the stigma around drug use, treating it as a healthcare problem rather than a criminal problem, and increasing our awareness and education about drugs. And see, that's the key right there. I'm gonna keep going back to this. I'm gonna hammer it in until the day I die of this podcast, and that is education, man. That is all we really have to fight those situations. Yeah. Because here's the deal. I thought it funny because this February 1st thing, I saw this, they interviewed, I think, the police chief of Medford, and he was saying, yeah, well, you know, now that they're decriminalizing personal amounts of drugs, our concern is that these people will just end up paying the fine. And because they're not required to get help, they're just not going to get help. And it's like, okay, that's the problem, right? You're, <laughs> you're, you're talking about the problem right there. Unless they want help, yeah. they are not going to get it. Even and if it, you force them. Even if you force them, you want to put them on probation, you want to put them in jail, I guarantee when they get out, if they're real drug addicts, they're going to be right back at it. You can't tell me that you're going to force somebody to be clean for the rest no. of their life. It doesn't work that way. And if you believe that as a cop, then I'm starting to question your your thought process because that's not how it works. And that's exactly what he said. It's like, we're just afraid that people won't get help. Well, they're all not going to. They're not... I mean, that's just, unless they choose to, you're right. And yeah. that's the way it should be because you can't force someone to be, you can force someone to be clean for 90 days. Yeah. You can force somebody to be clean until they're out of prison or to pass a drug test or whatever. You but, know. but once that's done, you haven't fixed anything. No, I mean, and you know, mental health therapy is, is like that in general. Like if you are suffering from any number of things and I, I can speak to this because of my bipolar stuff, mm-hmm. but like, until you're ready to like sit down and be honest with a therapist and like really give into the process, like it doesn't matter how many therapists you go see because someone has hassled you to go see one. Um, 
that progress. Or they'll force you, you go to jail. Right. You like got to get that, help or you're going to go to jail. Right. Oh, great. If, that'll get me clean. <laughs> right. So like at that point, you're just playing a game and you're I, working the system. I've seen a lot of people do this that get forced into um, different sorts of treatment or whatever for different reasons. And it's just a game mentality. It's like, okay, well, what hoops do I need to jump through to get through this to then get on the other side and then do whatever I want to do? Um, so, you know, this isn't, it's not even just an addiction thing. Like this is just, you well, can't force people to do no, <laughs> what you no. want them to do. They're an I adult. Mean, they're autonomous. And, yeah. And yeah. yeah. And the thing is too, is if you look at the help that is required or was required currently with like this area and stuff is the places they offer to go to are, are archaic, especially around here and yeah. lost and yeah. they're not teaching you nothing. Those counselors don't care. Trust me, I've been there. They could give a <laughs> shit less about you. All they want you to do is to check in so they don't have to fucking get in trouble and get you in trouble, all that. They don't care. Yeah. There's no real incentive for them except to show up to work and deal with a bunch of drug addicts is how it feels. Yeah, I mean, that's... Um, but the help is crap when it comes to if you don't get help, you're going to jail. Yeah, I mean, Southern Oregon is is very behind um, in, in many different ways. And a lot of the... Um, therapy groups and stuff are very prohibitionist based or abstinence based I should say um it's it's been something my wife and I talk a lot about because she's in it she's you know working in that system and you know gets frustrated a lot of some of the attitudes that she encounters and especially about cannabis because she listens to me talk all the time and so when she hears people say something ignorant about cannabis she's just like oh God, this is somebody who's actually like responsible for helping people. And they have this, you know, idea that is totally divorced from reality. Um, but then that also highlights another issue of our human condition and that we all live in our own realities. Um, and that can yes. be scary sometimes. And unfortunately, uh, just to add to that is that we can be influenced by other people's ideas too. Yes. And yeah. when you, and I've seen this firsthand with personally with my listeners, I've seen them be, I've had contact with listeners that have literally been, I don't know what the word is, tricked or seduced into a certain idea. Mm -hmm. Like like when it comes to like uh, uh, conspiracy theorists. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. One problem with those really bad conspiracies that are really on baseless facts, they affect other people because other people who are mentally not mm -hmm. thinking, yeah. you know, critically, could fall into your trap. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you got a bunch of just people that have fallen in your trap. It's it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible yeah. because those people don't realize that they're literally affecting the lives of other people with their rants of weirdness. Well, and that leads into where we're at now. I saw and um, I got some pushback on, on Facebook about this. I made a comment about how I saw some uh, folks talking on CNN about the need to censor uh, podcasts yeah. and YouTube channels and stuff. And I was like, you know, I so first off, I get it mm -hmm. that these media platforms are private companies. Totally get it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I support their autonomy as private companies. What I have a problem with is the mentality and the strategy, this idea that if someone is spewing a bunch of crap that we've got to turn that faucet off before it poisons the well. I'm like, that's that sounds really good at first, but it causes this weird narrowing effect where the things that you consider poison 
um, are sort of like less and less significant things. Um, you know, you start paying attention to more and more. You, you get on the hunt to police. Well, that's the thing and, is once it starts, it's going to continue. Yeah. And it's going to fold over itself until it's And it's happening. I mean, it's, the, the dominoes are falling now at this well, point. What's going to happen is kind of like what you said, man, is I think people are going to have to start getting used to running their own servers and, you know, whatever. Just uh, to get it, look up Tor browsers. And well, because, you know, like, like, for instance, like I can't be sent. I could be censored by Blueberry mm-hmm. because they're a private company sure they could turn you off right and that's that's my limitation there is unless i'm hosting my own stuff Mm -hmm. you know they can do that even then that's hard like what about domain registrars i mean this trickles out into into other like private companies think Mm -hmm. you know a person that commented on my facebook they were like well if someone has a message they can just start a website i'm like well actually that's Mm -hmm. not that Mm -hmm. simple um if you can find a domain registrar that will host you and you know all these different things and it's it's a far more complex problem and just the the idea of like is this how we want to handle bad ideas like okay we know that there are bad ideas out there there are conspiracies there's incitement of violence all these terrible things um but does the strategy work the prohibitionist strategy the like keep people hidden from the bad things like that strategy just doesn't have a good track record no matter where it's applied um and so i i do have concerns about that um but it's it's a complicated thing because also if someone is inciting violence and that's you know presenting direct harm to somebody i can totally get why you would cut off you know their ability to communicate through that that platform um, so it's not a, it's not an easy problem to, to deal with, but it is something that like, I'm, I'm certainly nervous because coming from the cannabis world. And I think this, we, maybe we have a unique perspective because we do come from cannabis because we already are censored mm. already. I, mm-hmm. my YouTube channel, this is something I'm, I've clued in on over the past several months and I didn't realize it and I should have realized it, but there is some weird censoring suppression thing happening with the curious about cannabis YouTube that I do not understand, but I have tried like one little example. So you know how, when you search on YouTube for the same thing over and over Mm -hmm. again, if you start typing it in, it'll predict it for Mm -hmm. you and it'll show that you've searched for it before. When I've tried to do that with my own channel, I can never get it to remember it. It will never predict it. You've been shadow banned. It will never say curious (laughs) about cannabis. Type curious about C. It will never, no, you have never to predict type it. out the whole word, huh? And it it never remembers it in my history. If I Instagram does that to certain people too, it does. And I if I talk to my Google Home and I say, "Hey, play the Curious About Cannabis podcast on Spotify," it's like well, I don't know what that is. I can't yeah. find it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's these things at play. I don't understand it. I don't know what I've done, how to get around it. But it started to make sense because I mean, I've posted hundreds of videos on YouTube. And there's some level of like, you know, obviously it takes a while to get views and stuff like that, but there was something weird happening. I was like, something's, my stuff is just not getting seen and I don't get it given how much content is out there and all the topics and all the names and stuff. It just didn't quite fit. And that's kind of got me looking into it. So I know already that there are, there's this hidden layer of censorship that already exists Mm -hmm. on these platforms that regardless of whether you're obeying their terms of service or not it doesn't happen it doesn't matter right and so recognizing that is what makes me nervous because yes if if the terms of service were consistently applied and there was act there were actually real rules to follow that made sense and you could really 
play the game and win, then that's one thing. But that's not how it's set up at all. And anyone who's done media content for cannabis knows that. Um, And it doesn't matter if you're doing hemp. I've argued with Facebook and other companies saying like cannabis is not just marijuana, it's hemp. And like this is educational and blah, blah, blah. And um, and you bring up a good point there. We can't even advertise. No, we can't advertise. I can't. Yeah. You know, even even, even though hemp is legal, doesn't matter. Or even like I've even kept it to where it was in the Oregon. ad itself was in Oregon. Yeah, me too. Oregon people yep. only twenty one and over. All the detail and still get denied. No, and with- oh, and just just so you know, when I did do that, I I challenged it, and yep. I actually talked to somebody, mm-hmm. and I told them that what we just said it's legal. I only did the ad in Oregon. I did it twenty one and older. All that. And so they said, okay, well, we'll put your ad out there. Not one view. Exactly. Not exactly. One I've done, view. Yep, yep. They released the ad and I didn't get one view. How does that happen? I'm like, motherfuckers. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Mm-hmm. I won. I won, right? Mm-hmm. They put the ad up. Yeah, sure they did. Yep. No views. I've, I've experienced the exact, exact same thing. Um, and it's, I don't think I've ever talked about it on the podcast, so this is kind of cool to actually go into some of this because I think some people don't realize how significant it is. Um, but this silent censorship, it exists, and it's not as simple as just follow the terms of agreement and you'll be fine and don't incite violence and you'll be fine. Like, no, 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 no. Like, this relates to all sorts of stuff that companies have secretly deemed unacceptable that they don't put in their terms of service, that they don't consistently apply, um, that you can make every rational argument in the world about how you actually are adhering to their terms of service and it doesn't matter. I post educational content about cannabis that doesn't get seen by anybody, but someone like you know a recognized media company like Vice or anyone else could post stuff about cannabis and that's not gonna be mm-hmm. uh, curated the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's a certain level of like, once you're bringing them money, in the form of like advertisers and stuff, and you're like a big deal, well then you get around all of that that sort of stuff. But if you're a small fish, like it is hard. It is hard to navigate those waters, and the waters don't make sense. The rules constantly change, and so and you will, and you might not even be aware of the censorship. Right, exactly. Like be, myself, could, yeah. I didn't know mm, that yeah. this was happening, and I'm already right now. I'm like, how can I get around this? Because there are channels on YouTube that have cannabis in the name. Mm-hmm that don't have that problem so it's like why me why did this happen to me well, what did I, think, I do yeah and i think recently it's just getting worse well, I think with all the situations because yeah. like ig i've been getting stuff pulled yeah like stuff that's three years old well that's, like i'll have a three-year-old yeah. post and they're like oh this didn't meet community guidelines we took it off and i'm like three fucking years ago shouldn't there be some time limit to like are you do you do did anybody go three years back on my timeline really you did damn yeah no they I, <laughs> well when facebook got in hot water about not um policing some of the disinformation around um you know the campaigns back in 2016 and in 2020 they overcorrected and instituted some new algorithms and stuff that I know a lot of cannabis people got really affected and still are being affected um, starting about four months ago or so, four or five months ago, like really intense uh, posts from the past being pulled down, people getting um, automatically suspended on Facebook and Instagram and stuff. And so, I mean, my point is just having that experience in cannabis that can happen with any topic, mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Um, anything can be made controversial and taboo and off limits depending on the culture and 
the company and, you know, and all these different things. And so starting this domino chain of deplatforming people based on ideas they're expressing or everything, it's, it will never be just limited to extreme cases. Right. And so that's, that's why I get so nervous about it. But it was funny the well, guy that responded to my my post about that. He's like, I don't understand how no one in the United States understands that um, the government's not censoring you. It's private companies. And I'm like, just because it's a private company doesn't mean it's not censorship. I mean, right. it's, it maybe isn't a violation of freedom of speech, right. which I get. I'm not saying it's a constitutional violation. Yeah. I'm just saying like, that's probably not a really great idea for our society to do as a cultural norm. Yeah. And that's not a great way to react to things we don't like. Um, and even things that are dangerous um, because now you see all of these platforms being pushed underground and it's like the same conversations, same communications are going to happen, but now they're going to be happening in the dark. And well, also I think is going to make for ex- more extreme things to happen. Yes. The response, it, it just, it, it, yeah. yeah, it furthers the extremity. Yeah, so now you got places that are opening up that are bringing parlor in and stuff, and they're going to be this gigantic entity of shit. Yeah, it's like all of the, yeah, all of the crap that was sort of contaminating yeah. the other platforms is now it's precipitated out focused. and coagulated yeah. Yeah. into this nasty And it's mess. like, that's going to be extreme going to a site like that where it's just all just Crazy and shit silo like thinking was already a problem on all platforms and now it's going to be really intense and it i don't know it's just like i get the knee-jerk reaction I, and i totally especially after the storming of the capital and everything i get i get it i get why we're moving in this direction but it's just another one of these examples where if we're not having the philosophical conversations about mm. decision making i'm not talking about laws or you know the constitution or anything like that i'm just talking about as people how do we handle ideas that mm. are problematic? Mm. Um, and is this the best way to go? And it doesn't, right now it's not even politically okay to have that conversation. And that makes me very, very nervous because like, well, you know, what if down the road I'm doing education about uh, something, something else that people don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of a sudden they decide to turn me off. You know, it's like, I don't know. That's just not, it's not the kind of environment well, that I would like to No, And as you know, there's like several platforms in front of us. Like, yeah, we don't just deal with blueberry. You know, right. I deal with blueberry. I deal with WordPress. I deal with, you yep. know, so GoDaddy. I, I yep. deal with, uh, you know, um, um, blue, blue host, uh, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of private companies it's involved in just getting this podcast out. Yep. So, yeah. All right, Jason. Well, dude, I've, I've kept you a long time, man. Why don't you plug oh, nice. your stuff? Yeah, why don't you plug? We're at 215. Excellent. So pla- <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so go ahead and plug yourself and then uh, let us know where we can find you and we'll we'll get going. Good deal. Yeah. So I'm um, curious about cannabis. Uh, the website is CACpodcast.com and you can find um, episodes and keep up with us there. We're also on social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, primarily Instagram. And um, also be taking a look at Natural Learning Enterprises and some of the stuff that we're working on on the side because um, a lot of my work is starting to move um, beyond cannabis. And so there's some interesting stuff there. We have a limited series that may come out this year, uh, maybe the end of the year, but serious about psychedelics. So we have a psychedelics miniseries uh, podcast that'll be coming out 
and then there's another um another podcast program show we'll see what it becomes but something i'm really excited about called isn't life curious which is focused more on science and philosophy topics broadly uh, which will allow me to um, expose people to other conversations that I'm having with um, all sorts of people in my networks that are doing other interesting scientific things um, in other areas. And especially, like I said, my background in ecology and stuff, I want to um, do some focus on like environmental ethics. And um, uh, one thing I'm really passionate about is uh, wildlife conservation. And so exploring some of the challenges to that and what people can do in their homes to um, help slow down or reverse um, trends in biodiversity loss and that sort of thing. So I'm really excited about all of that. So you can go to naturaledu.com to keep up with just the media company broadly, including um, Serious About Psychedelics and Curious About Cannabis and all the other um, different learning initiatives that we do. Um, but other than that, focusing on Curious About Cannabis, I mentioned the learning platform is coming really soon. If you're a patron, um, I just made a post yesterday giving details about that and what to expect from the learning platform and how to get access and the public will get access in, um, probably a month or two. So be on the lookout from that and that we'll have episodes coming pretty much every week for the foreseeable future on Man, the you got cannabis a, podcast. Yeah. And you've got a shit ton of stuff on your patron. So if you're not a patron, check it out. It's worth it. Yeah. And that's lots of good stuff on there, man. And that's patreon.com slash curious about cannabis. So pretty easy to find. And I'm, I'm adjusting all the tiers and everything um, because there will be a tier on the Patreon that will give you uh, membership access to our learning platform as well. So um, it's all going through a little bit of uh, an evolution, but keep your eyes on it. And if you are a patron, um, get excited because I'm looking forward to sharing some really cool new stuff with you um, and giving you kind of an exclusive look before it goes live. So yeah, that's that's pretty much what I got so far. My, my main goal for 2021 is to um, finish my pivots from 2020 and get a lot of my education work virtualized. And so I'm really excited about that. And uh, there'll be more about workshops and all sorts of stuff, seminars and things coming down the pipeline just as soon as I can get them ready. Awesome, brother. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks it's so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. We always have good conversations. Yes. And and I don't know when this will come out in, in contrast to my 50th episode. It'll probably come out before because I'm still quite a bit a ways from mm -hmm. there. But, um, um, you know, we're going to Oregon Rooted and Curious About Cannabis are going to do a joint podcast for our 50th episode. So um, that'll be fun. I feel so special. <laughs> we'll find some <laughs> some good ways to celebrate yes. and some fun things to yes, talk about will. there. So, yes. yeah, if you like Oregon Rooted and you like Curious About Cannabis, uh, be on the lookout for our 50th episode. It'll probably come in the middle of, no, it'll probably come early March, I imagine. Great. All right, brother. I appreciate awesome, it, man. man. Until yeah. next time. Until next time. Stay curious. I'm Higher Peaks, and you've just listened to The Dirt Show. If you like this episode, please like, share, comment, and go to organrooted.com where you can subscribe to us on your favorite platform like iTunes, Pandora, or Spotify. Also check us out on our YouTube for videos and IG, Facebook, and Twitter for all our updates. Thank you for listening.